welcome everyone to THPS podcast episode number 41 we broke we broke the big 40 hey thanks everybody for joining thanks for uh, taking some time to hang out and spend some time uh, with us we really appreciate it uh, any moment of time that you can spare to spend with us and hang out is uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you, as always, for the support. I am the Dode Man, uh, one of your hosts, and at this time, I would like to introduce my co-host, the amazing Freddie. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Back for another podcast. Can't believe it's episode 41 already. It seems like just yesterday we were on episode 20. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. That's uh, that's very true. <clears throat> All right. Hey, as we get going here, uh, we have uh, we have just a couple of pieces of house uh, housekeeping that we want to attend to um, before we get into introducing our awesome guests that we have uh, with us today. Uh, we're super stoked to have him, uh, but we're going to talk about that in just a second. So uh, as everybody knows, we had a nice update for November from Vicarious Visions for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 Plus 2 Remake Re. Uh, remaster, I guess I should say. Uh, we've got over 100 new challenges. Uh, they tuned multiplayer playlists, replay tours with individual skaters, Crash Bandicoot themed gear for the for your creative skater. You can toggle skater voices, kill those woohoos if you so choose. Neon rails are added to Creative Park. Flat top lunks added to smart pieces in Creative Park. So this is really cool, uh, showing that Vicarious Visions is still supporting this game, still putting out updates. Freddie, have you had a chance to check this out? Yeah, I had a chance to, uh, to dip my toes in for a little bit, and uh, I'm definitely digging those neon rails in the cap mode that you mentioned. Yeah, super cool. That was actually a feature that was cut uh, ahead before uh, before the thing. Uh, there was a webinar that I went to with the lead designer from Vicarious Visions, and uh, he talked about that being a feature. So super, super cool to see that they were able uh, to get that included. Okay, uh, second, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's been a while. It's been a lot of years, but uh, the uh, world-famous TLT clan released TLT 2020 this week. And if you haven't had a chance to check it out, I highly recommend that you do so. Uh, it's just absolutely uh, an incredible showcase of some of the best players and best talent uh, that uh, there is to offer for Thug Pro uh, in 2020. So um, we'll go ahead and post a link to that in the chat. If you could grab that, Freddie, that'd be awesome. Uh, Freddie, have you checked that out? Definitely. I checked out the premiere um, when it came out on Halloween. Um you know, TLT set the bar 15 years ago with their team videos, and now here in 2020, they're continuing to do the same. Uh, highlights of the video included a no manual from PTC, a no manual from George, and a no manual from Draco, if you can believe it or not. Yeah. And uh, and also uh, some really a really awesome tribute to uh, Fate and Montage. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was really cool, really touching stuff. Um Good stuff. If you haven't had a chance, make sure and check that out. Freddie's linked it in the chat. We'll make sure and link it in the chat for, or excuse me, in the description for our uh, YouTube replays as well. All right, final uh, uh, piece of housekeeping. I'll talk here in a second. Um, 
Uh, we're entering a new generation of consoles. Xbox Series X is out on November 10th, and then PlayStation 5 is out on November 12th. Uh, we are really looking forward to seeing and hearing if there's any performance boost for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 Plus 2 when it's played on the new systems via backwards compatibility. We're hearing some uh, we're hearing some tales that some games have uh, got quite a bit of boost. Um, Freddie, you got a you got a PS5 coming? I don't have one pre-ordered, but uh, <laughs> I don't either. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely in the cards, and um, definitely looking forward to seeing if there's any effect at all on One Plus Two, because uh, that'll be a big uh, swaying point for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'll be good to hear. So uh, make sure and let us know if anybody has heard. Uh, if anybody's got a PS Five uh, at launch, let us know how that works out. So uh, cool. All right. So, without further ado, uh, let's introduce today's guest. Our guest today is Chris Roush. Chris worked for Neversoft uh, as a game designer for Pro Skater 1, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1, through Tony Hawk's Underground 1. Many will recognize him by one of his nicknames, Team Chicken. Think a TC's Rip Gap in School 2, the level. Uh, Chris is currently the creative director for Nicholas and previous co-founder of Supervillain Super Villain Studios. He's a long-standing uh, veteran of the games industry, starting as a teenager with Virgin Interactive, and uh, and uh, he held his first lead design role at the age of 19. He played a massive role in the work that brought the Tony Hawk franchise to life with Neversoft. Chris has seen the entire scope of the game industry, from high success of massive AAA titles to the rough and trying times of a scrappy startup. Chris also was involved in, uh, with and interviewed for the Pretending I'm a Superman Tony Hawk's Pro Skater documentary that is highly recommended uh, by all of us, I'm sure. Uh, everybody, please join us in welcoming to the podcast Chris Rausch. Hello, hello. Chris, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Yeah, this uh, this was an interesting one because uh, I, I just noticed one day I was loading uh, up the Twitter account for the podcast and I saw that you followed us and I'm like, oh, Chris Roush is awesome. Uh, I'm just going <laughs> to, who knows, let's just reach out and see if you'd be willing to do the podcast. And you responded like right away and you're like, sure. I'm like, wow, crazy. <laughs> I, I wish everybody I followed felt that way. <laughs> wow, that guy's awesome. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, quite busy schedule to uh, to chat with us for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, all, all good. Definitely cool. Cool. All right, hey, let's jump right in. We've got a lot of questions, a lot of ground to cover uh, that we want to talk about and hit and uh, discuss here on the podcast here today. So uh, let's hit some general questions and quick hits like we do for all of our guests. These are going to be tailored to you um, based on uh, your your uh, history and, and uh, 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 resume with the series and with your work. So uh, number yep. one, when did you start? first start working at Neversoft? Ah, uh, geez, that was, uh, kind of what the original game came out in 99, right? End of 99? Yes. Roughly? Yep. So I worked there all year, basically, that, that whole entire year. Um, I actually interviewed at Neversoft to work on the game uh, initially before any part of it was, was done. Perfect. And Chris, can you tell us what your favorite Tony Hawk game was that you worked on? 
Uh, personally, it's probably two, uh, followed by four closely. Um, two, two was the one where, you, you know, we, we had so many things in mind for one that we couldn't get done. Things like the manual and, and stuff like that that we had thought through. Um, and we were able to do it on, on two. And, uh, yeah, that one for me, I just, I always go back to it. It seems like the first game is the one that, that, you know, started kind of the whole explosion, but two is when it really like took off. Yeah, for sure. And then four, I love four because four was when we, we transitioned into more like skate centric challenges and stuff. You know, it wasn't just collecting skate. It was doing tricks and, and actually being challenged to, to play the game. You're going to get no arguments from Freddie or I. We both claim <laughs> four as our favorite title in the series. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very good. Yep. <clears throat> so that's awesome. I'd love to hear that. That's cool. Uh, so then uh, of all the games, that, not that you worked on, but that you, I'm sure you played them all, uh, that you worked on for sure you would yeah. have had to have, what was your yeah. favorite one to play? Um, God, probably four. You know, I, I like the freedom of being able to just – cruise around those levels yes. without the two-minute timer. Love it. Uh, I, you, you know, I, I, there's people on both sides of that coin. I know a lot of people are, are kind of purists for the old way, and they were, they'll argue against, you know, freeing up the timer. But um, I, I really liked being able to just move around in, in the levels. Like, for me, the way I played, uh, I just had fun hitting spots, you know? Uh-huh. I, I, like, I got into combos and stuff and, and um, you know, big heavy scoring chains and things like that, and you know, of course, we all had our internal competitions when everything went online. But uh, I still have fun. Even with uh, one and two, they're out right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. I still have fun just setting up and uh, hitting a rail with, like, a, a specific, you know, flip-in, flip-out trick. And nice. I, I just – it just feels cool. Like, you know, they got it right, so <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get into that in depth for sure, and, and I agree. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's awesome. And, and out of all of the games and titles, what was your favorite level? Um, so I was basically saying, like, if I if I mention one of my own as my favorite, is that cheap? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, then it's probably it's probably school too. You know. Yeah. Um, that was uh that was one where I really got to to go nuts and you know spread it out and make it make it a lot of a, a collection of a lot of really fun spots that were real yes yeah it's a classic it's a it's yeah. uh I don't think you're gonna get any I don't think I've everybody ever heard anybody say they don't like school too so <laughs> yeah I actually like um I did a an Australia level too I like that one a lot too um, and some some of the stuff that wasn't mine that was really fun, like Alcatraz and uh, uh, the cruise ship in from three, were probably some of my favorites that that some of the other guys did. Yeah, hmm. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> so, of uh, all the game modes that ended up being in the games that you worked on, what was your favorite? Um. Like multiplayer type stuff you're talking about? Yeah, anything. Any of the game modes at all. It could be single, multi, whatever. Uh, I, you know, uh, graffiti, uh, graffiti was really fun until you started playing all these guys online that were killer at it and could just take the entire level away from you, like, after the after the, the timer was up. Uh, but up until that point, like, graffiti I thought was really cool. Yeah, for sure. 
graffiti is a classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you, bro- you know, it was it was kind of up to us to break the levels up um, in terms of, you know, what chunks and things that you could score points off of. So if you broke the level up really well and had a lot of little nitpicky uh, objects here and there that you could you could kind of chain together, that was that was the best time. Nice. So now we have a, just a few questions about your early career, Chris, uh, more sure. in-depth. Um, first of which is, what was your first job in the video game industry? Uh, so I joined uh, Virgin Interactive. Um, they did a bunch of Disney titles and everything else. I, I went in there um, trying to get a customer service job. And the, the uh, gal that I talked to uh, for that job after a little while on the phone asked me how old I was. Um, and I, I guess I sounded young at the time I was 18. And so she said, Oh, you don't, you don't want to be uh, customer service. That that's boring. You want to go in QA. So I didn't even know what QA was. Um, sure. you know, I asked her like, what is that? She says, it's quality assurance. You, you play the games and you tell them what's wrong. And I, and you know, and, and my, my response was, you're going to pay me for that. Like, of course, <laughs> this sounds perfect. Nice. Um, I was in school at the time trying to be an art major. What was the first video game you ever worked on that actually shipped? Uh, the, the very first thing I ever did um, when I got to Virgin was uh, sat down and QA'd the, the Jungle Book on the NES, on the Nintendo. <laughs> oh, so, wow. So I'm kind of I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too. Don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, hey, hey man, but the the NES was at the end of its life cycle, so you know, <laughs> not that. <laughs> Jungle Book on NES, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Jungle Book on NES and uh, Sega Game Gear. That was the first. They were doing a bunch of Disney titles, and uh, I worked on that one for for maybe a few weeks, uh, long enough to get my name, you know, in the credits. So that technically was the first one I did, and then wow. they uh, flipped over to a bunch of different stuff. The first game that like start to finish where I had. You know, early access to it was probably like Lion King on the Genesis and Super Nintendo. Yeah, nice. Wow, that's uh, that's that's definitely back there for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So you stated in your interview with GameDev.net that you had been pitching the idea of a skateboarding game to the company you worked for prior to NeverSoft for two years. Yeah. Can you shed Can you shed any insight into what that original concept was, and did the first Tony Hawk even closely resemble what you envisioned? Um, yeah, so it's actually uh, called, it was called Concrete Warriors. Um, it started, so I, I had mentioned that uh, I was working at Virgin in QA. And back then, um, QA departments were a little different. We were much smaller, and we were all full-time employees. You know, nowadays you get a lot of, uh, uh, like, young kids that they'll kind of bring in and work up on a game and then flush them all out and do it again for the next title. There's not really a, a permanent spot. Uh, for QA anymore the the scene has kind of changed so back then there were you know maybe five of us on any given project and we worked closely with uh, producers so I got to see you know early games coming in and out and and started thinking about you know what I would want to make and it started with snowboarding Uh, you know I was a I was a skater when I was a kid nice and I kind of uh, followed the wave you know like uh, you know early 90s was was about the last time I was on a skateboard at the time and snowboarding had kind of come in and so you know me and my buddies switched over and we were doing that for a while and uh I thought you know it would be it would be awesome to do a snowboarding game um 
and I started, you know, asking around to the producers and things that I had access to. And uh, one of them actually showed me Cool Borders from Japan. Yeah, love that game. Yeah, and he was he was trying to get it into Virgin, um, and it and Virgin I think rejected it. And he actually ended up going to Sony proper and producing it anyway. So that was cool <laughs> for, for for the Americas. Um, so I gave up on the snowboarding thing because you know somebody had beaten us to it, and switched over to skateboarding. And I was like, you know, uh, there's, I, I know it's, you know, the, the popularity's down right now, but you know, I, I would love to do it. It's, it's always had a, a fun history in video games and arcades, um, you know, and and with PlayStation and everything coming along and, and 3D coming up, I think it would be a really fun thing to do. And initially, like you know, early on before I put any real effort into it, people were just shooting it down and saying, you know, nah, it's a fad. It'll be, you know, it'll be dead by the time it hits the hits the store or anything like that. Sure. So I kind of sat on it for a while and then probably around 90, maybe sometime early 90s or late 97, early 98. Um, the company Virgin itself had gone through a bunch of management changes and buyouts and things. And, uh, we were a lot smaller, the development team at the time. Um, so I'd always been pitching it to, friends of mine and and whatever and i uh hooked up with a marketing friend of mine named candace and she told me to try to take it in a different direction like instead of trying to pitch it as this creative thing where you just say you know hey skateboarding's great um i'll hook you into a bunch of magazines and technical numbers you know for for the marketing aspect and the sales aspect so you can kind of be speaking their language instead of just saying how much you want to make a skateboarding game Oh, and that nice. was good. So I, I went, I went, you know, full into it. I wrote a, a design doc that had a brief kind of creative overview, um, just a real quick touch on some features. But then kind of dove into how accessible, you know, the skaters were in terms of sponsorships. How accessible all of the the manufacturers were, and that you know, even being in Southern California, we were, you know, located to most of the big names. Right. Uh, dialed into a bunch of different magazines and editors who were really cool and gave me like uh, all their pass through numbers and stuff. So I could tell them, you know, any given copy of this magazine, you know, whether it's trans world is, is read by uh, upwards of, you know, 15 to 20 people, any given copy of even the smaller magazines like power age, you know, six people read every episode or read every issue. Right. So if these guys have a hundred thousand subscription, you can, you can count on that being more than half a million people. So trying to, you know, show them that there was an audience so i i screened up some t-shirts i still have one. <laughs> oh, cool uh, yeah i made a logo i screened up some t-shirts i did a, a whole like a full-on pitch this time around and that was the last time uh that i got shot down it was actually a, a meeting they called me into they had me kind of in a position at the time um we had dreamcast hardware okay and it was uh the 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 code name for it was Katana. And so it was real early, and, and but we could see some of the promise. Like this was, holy moly, this was going to be better than, than PlayStation, but it was quite a ways out. You know, we were getting early access to it because we were a, a, a large name at one point. Right. Um, so they had me doing a bunch of uh, ideas and concepts and things. And that was, that was one of them. I think I had a fantasy game. I had a game with tanks in it and I had the skateboarding game. 
and they, you know, sat me down and said, you know, oh, this one here, like, you know, it's, it's interesting for us. Um, you know, this one over here has, has tanks in it. And, and that's kind of our thing too. the skateboarding thing. Like we're not interested in this because that's not what we do, which is funny because uh, <laughs> they, they, they had recently been bought by EA. So we, we now had EA. Oh and gosh. And so, <laughs> you know, and it was like kind of prematurely saying that they wouldn't be interested in it. But yeah, um, I, I remember specifically the last thing that they said to me, um, was this little uh, scenario that he painted to um, kind of explain to me how they felt about it. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, we don't want to do the skateboarding thing. If somebody else comes along and does it, you know, are we going to be upset about it? And, uh, you know, because it's just not our, our deal. And I was like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure they were Oh, wow. About it. <laughs> they had to be kicking themselves later, I would imagine. Oh, My yeah. goodness. Yeah. yeah, for sure. That was actually uh, – it was one of those moments where, you know, it was uh, my comeuppance. You know, I was yeah. I was pretty happy about it. Oh, like, yeah, for right. sure. <laughs> you should have listened to me, sucker. Yeah. But then they end up doing it. skate, and they end it. up, that kind of ends up being kind of where the, the tide shifts in skateboarding yep. games later. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they shortcutted it and just got that out of Japan, and that wasn't the one. Wow. That's great. Wow, what a good story, huh? Yeah. Concrete warriors. I had not. I, had, I didn't know that. So that's that's good information for sure. <clears throat> yeah, I actually I have the I have a copy of the document that I did. I have uh, oh cool one of the one of the t-shirts that I did. Yeah, I've got all that stuff. That I, is I so cool. A bunch of it. <laughs> and yeah, it's, uh, it's, as far as you know, resembling Tony Hawk. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of uh, bunch of features in there that I listed out that that were actually kind of some of the direction that I brought to the project when I came on. Cause when wow. I came on and they had started up and done the demo that you always hear about Tony Hawk, you know, seeing yeah. at Activision and stuff, it was kind of going a different direction. It was a, a little more linear, it was, you know, like the downhill, right. what became downhill jam in the mall. It was kind right, of that right, right. top yeah. skater influence type of thing. Right. Yeah, for sure. So how did would... then, so you go then from, from concrete warriors, they, they don't go, they don't, they're going to pass on the skateboarding idea. So how'd you end up at Neversoft then? Uh, so man, uh, that's a good story too. Um, so <laughs> E3, like I said, they were having me do a bunch of, um, uh, ideas and concepts for that dreamcast hardware, like potential things to move on. Cause they, that was kind of their last creative guy was their last designer uh, at the studio at the time. Cause they, they had downsized quite a bit. Okay. So uh, they were sending me to E3 in 97, 98, one of those. Um, and it was the one that was out in Atlanta. And uh, I was supposed to go out there and basically review everything I could see on the show floor and, and write a report about you know what all the trends and things were. And um, I'm sitting in a bar uh, at E3 in Atlanta at the, at the convention center or whatever, uh-huh. talking to um, – uh, a guy named Steve Martin. He's a programmer who worked on some of the Hawk games with us and, and was a, a longtime friend of mine. Okay. Um, and I'm complaining, you know, loudly. Sure. Uh, because I had just been, I had just been shot down not long ago. And, I'm, and I look at him and I see, you know, like, God forbid, who'd ever want to do something fun like a skateboarding game? I don't know. I'm crazy. Whatever. And I'm being obnoxious. Right, right. And, and this guy comes storming up behind me and he's, you know, this giant handlebar mustache and a puffy, <laughs> puffy camping jacket. Right, and right. He goes, 
He goes, dude, you want to make skateboarding games? And totally, <laughs> totally animated, you know, and he's got a huge beer in his hand. <laughs> I was like, uh, who are you, man? And uh, he t- and it's Joel Jewett. He's wow. the president of Neversoft. Right, right. And I looked at him. I said, well, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to. I've been trying to get one off the ground, and it's not working out. And he says, man, me and my guys, we're going to work on a we're, – we're trying to work on a skateboarding game right now. And, you know, the, the, the big problem is we don't have anybody that knows skateboarding. Right. Like we're all just a bunch of game guys, whatever. And he points to the bar and, you know, like, like would be uh, the scene for many E3s to come, you know, eight or nine – Guys from Neversoft turn around. <laughs> the whole Neversoft cruise and, right and, there. You know, and Cheers, you know, holds up their beers. They don't know what the hell Joel's talking right, about. Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he's just, he's he he lit up like a Christmas tree, man. He, I think, was looking for someone for a, a little while there. Wow. And he was getting frustrated that they couldn't find anybody who knew 3D. 3D was, was still, you know, kind of in its infancy. Sure, in terms yeah. of, uh, uh, you know, game design and, and people who could do it. And, uh, and yeah, and somebody who knew skateboarding and, and I had both. And so he got really excited and he was a little bummed. He was like, you know, you, you're going to have to maybe move out to LA cause you know, that's uh and I said, uh, you know, as the universe would have it, I live in LA. So that's <laughs> not a problem at all. Wow. And yeah, that was it. When the show was over, um, I went to interview with them, went in on a Saturday. Uh, it was Joel, it was Mick West, who was the other uh, partner. He was the programmer. Right. Um, Dave Stoll came in. Uh, he was. Uh, he ended. He's. I think he's probably still at Activision. Maybe he's a president. I think okay. at this point. Um, he was an executive producer on the uh, the beginnings of that project, and I think Scott Pease came in as well. Yeah. So I interviewed with all these guys on on a Saturday. They were. Cool. I thought it was just cool that they would come in because I couldn't come during the week because of my job. Right. And uh, yeah, we hit it off. They asked me a bunch of questions. They showed me the demo. Uh, you know what? Jason Wade was there. He was another one of the guys who okay. was an early uh, design guy. Yeah. Um, and they had me go into his office and take a look at what they had. And what they had was the Apocalypse game. It was it was uh, Bruce Willis. Right. And uh, Jason loaded up um, a skateboard, and he had a little rigid. He was like t posed on a on a little quick <laughs> skateboard on his feet, and. Um, they were trying to show me the engine, like how flexible the engine was. Back then, um, you know, a lot of a lot of times, like development environments, you would uh, you'd have to compile the game before okay. you could test it and play it. So, like, I'd be working on you know this casino game, which is actually what I was working on at the time. And anytime I made changes, I'd have to recompile the game, and it would yeah. take a few minutes. And so, every time you made a change, it was it was this long process. Right. And uh, their big thing was to show me how quickly they could reload the game and, and have you test and iterate and so jason takes one of the apocalypse levels and pulls up some verts in the 3d and makes a little uh, half pipe like a little rudimentary kind of half pipe and okay. then the 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 t-post bruce willis is is colliding with it you know and it's super rudimentary but he's obeying like the this half pipe he's kind of going back and forth oh, cool. and they're like you know and he's doing this in a split second he pulls something up on his screen and then hits a button and it reloads almost immediately, and I was blown away just by that at the time. Oh, like, oh sure, <laughs> that, that 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 whole five minute process just became a couple seconds. This could be amazing. Oh, crazy! So, That's cool. Yeah, it was really it was really cool. Um, I was a little intimidated. Like uh, honestly, Mick, I thought Mick hated me. He was <laughs> he was 
you know, he was the uh, the British James Bond guy in okay. my eyes. I was just like, oh, this right. guy just not like me. Like every every <laughs> is so pointed, and you know, and he's very kind of monotone with me and everything else. And then I I I would come to learn that that's mixed just kind of. He was kind of just a a very quiet, super smart guy, and that was just kind of him. So he was just intimidating for a young kid. <laughs> right? Yeah, I can only imagine. But wow. yeah, we hit that off. And that was great. Uh, Joel offered me the job, um, and that, uh, that was probably something that cut out early on. Um, he offered me the job, and I actually had to turn him down because I went back to Virgin. I was working on a casino game, a Golden Nugget, on the mm-hmm. N64, and um, there was the, the entire team was only six people, wow. and I was the I was the lead guy on it. And so if I left. Uh, it would kind of leave the project hanging. And I didn't want to do that. Um, sure. I really had a lot of respect for everybody on the team. So I called Joel. I said, hey, man, I, I can't come yet. Like, if you're still looking in a few months, I'll give you a call when this game's done. And he was bummed. And, you know, so I, I went back to Virgin. Uh, or we were Westwood at the time, Westwood Pacific. Okay. And, uh, you know, I just kind of kept an eye from a distance. And, and there used to be a website called... I think it was called Daily Radar. It was a, a long list of headlines. Um, and you would just scroll this, you know, vertical list of headlines and click on the one and read the article or whatever. You know, it was mm-hmm. uh, collected from, from the Internet. At the very bottom of the list one night uh, is a little blurb about Activision signing pro skater Tony Hawk. And I was like, oh, my God, they're totally going for it. Like, wow. they're, they're making all the right moves. Holy shit, I have yeah. to figure something out. So I went back to virgin and um i wasn't real happy at the time anymore you know like the my dream project was moving on without me and yeah the whole thing so the uh the setup at westwood at the time was a little was a little wonky in terms of you know the the way i worked or, or my outlook on things i got called into a meeting one time where they put a pie chart on a on a dry erase board and they he stood back and and told me like okay look 40 percent traversal and 30 percent you know text conversation and blah 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 15 percent platforming or whatever <laughs> and you know had asked me like what do you think of that and i'm like it looks like a pie chart what are you talking about i don't, I don't understand right, right. <laughs> and he goes well watch this you know and he and he points at it and he goes in his real you know spacey presentation voice he goes star wars and i was like i, I still don't understand man and he says, yeah, like, look, anything I throw at this becomes uh, a perfectly balanced game. Like, we don't even need to think, and I, you know, we don't need to think about it ahead of time. We don't need to do this or that. This is how we're going to design games now. Oh, and wow. it was kind of a, a green light in my head. Like, okay, well, this is totally insane, and I don't want to work this way. <laughs> uh, so so it's a perfect opportunity. Like, if I can, I, I, I had been there for five years, and I never took a single day of vacation. So I had all of this vacation pay and, and what would be a severance if I could, if I didn't quit. And uh, so I, at that point, I just kind of started speaking my mind. You know, he asked, what did you think? What do you think of that? And I said, well, you know, I think that's completely backwards, man, and wrong. And everything about this is no good. And, you know, not, right. not, not being a jerk, but, <laughs> you know, not, not holding my tongue anymore. Like, I wasn't <laughs> happy and, sure. and whatnot. Well, it worked. So. I don't, a couple of weeks later, uh, you know, they called me in and said, you know, hey, man, we, we, we 
kind of realize you're not happy anymore here and we're kind of we're going to go in one direction and we think that you don't really want to go that way so we're going to let you go and i said that's awesome thank you and they were a little <laughs> taken they were a little taken aback by it um so uh yeah you know they it was a it was a thursday i drove home and i've told this story before i drove home um we my wife and i had just had our, uh, another kid and I, I came in and I was like, babe, I, I, I'm not working there anymore. And she's like, what? <laughs> like, no, yeah, I don't have a job. <laughs> wow. This is, this is not good. What are you talking about? Right. And uh, so uh, I said, you know, I'm going to make a phone call and, you know, then we'll talk about it and whatever. So I went straight into the bedroom. I called Joel and uh, I said, hey, man, I'm available if you're still looking for me and or, or you need somebody. Um, and, he, and he says, yeah, dude, you know, we're totally still looking. We're still going for it. I said, yeah, I read the the deal on Tony. He's like, yeah, he's already getting involved and it's been great. Um, you know, when can you get down here? And this was a Thursday. And I said, I, you know, I can be there on Monday. He said, yeah, yeah, bring it in. So, wow. Uh, you know, on, on Thursday, I got my, my vacation payout and my severance check from, from Virgin. I walked out the door and I got a three day weekend and then started at Neversoft on Monday. Wow. So that's my, <laughs> it worked out amazing. <laughs> that was a total right place at the right time deal right there. I mean, oh, you just set the bar, you're it. talking to somebody and you're kind of just airing your grievances and Joel overhears you and walks over and he just has the, the cojones to, to <laughs> you know, say you want to get involved. That's crazy. Oh, Joel of all people, like I had never met anyone like him who was so gung-ho like that dude went wow. for what he wanted and nobody was going to tell him otherwise you know <laughs> i i i admired that guy from the get-go and that was wow. one of the things neversoft was tiny and i was coming yeah. from this company that was now growing again because it was bought by ea and he was definitely one of the the reasons i felt secure in, in making that jump like he could he could make you feel like he would bend over backwards to make this thing work and, huh. And it was awesome. And, and you know, I, like immediately when I met uh, guys like Jason Wada and, and the developers and Mick, of course, you know, everybody was hyper, hyper intelligent and just really good at what they were doing. And so That's I cool. almost kind of went there just hoping to get better, you know, like these guys can make me better and I can totally learn and, and that, let's do that. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's story. great. Good story. Long, Love long it. story long. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were still at Virgin, how many titles did you uh, actually work on before you started working on Tony Hawk? Oh, a whole bunch. So I was in QA for a year. I QA'd a bunch of stuff like uh, uh, Lynx Golf Game on Sega CD, the Jungle Book thing that we started with, um, Lion King, uh Gosh, what else? Some other, some stuff that didn't come out. Uh, some PC games. Uh, they started having me do voice work too, um, so I started doing a little voice acting for them on some other titles. Nice. Um, I probably worked on, man, I don't know, like ten to twelve or so things in that in that year. Wow. Um, and then, you know, my role was pretty limited for the most part, like at that point. But then. Uh, like I said, when, when I was able to, to get to know the producers, they would start throwing me tasks. They, uh, they realized I could do some art. I had started showing off like some pixel art, mm. stuff like that. And um, it came to a point where they would give me like dev tools and like, hey, tell us, you know, show us what you can do with this and, you know, make little animations or little stretches of a level as a test. And uh, my former lead 
from the QA department uh, had jumped over to the development building and started making a, a baseball game. He was going to be the head of their or the, the lead on their effort to make a bunch of sports games. And I'm a huge baseball fan. And so he brought me over. He said, you know, you want to come over here. I was, um, I think I was still 18. Maybe I was 19 by that point. Um, and I came over. Uh, the team was probably four people. Uh, myself, the lead designer, and uh, the lead artist, and the, pr the producer who was my old boss. And I guess within a, they started having me do AI, working with a programmer, and we mm -hmm. were making um, like baseball AI out of flowcharts. I would I would run through all these flowcharts and options and things to decide like pitches and every aspect of the AI. And uh, they really liked what I was doing. And and at one point, um, I they were kind of becoming a little disgruntled with the lead guy on the project and so i came in one day and that lead designer was gone and i said you know hey where is so and so and they said oh he's off the project um and you're going to be the lead now <laughs> and i was like wow. uh, like what <laughs> i've never even made a whole game guys like what are we talking about here so they yeah it just kind of threw me into the fire and wow. it, it it shifts man we shift it so that was a huge that was a huge bonus. Right into the deep yeah. end of the pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with baseball games, but we, yeah, for uh, sure. we, put, we, we put in a, a pitching meter, which EA ended up swiping several years later, but we preempted, you know, we got ahead of them by several years. Wow. But our, our title didn't get a lot of notice. That actually came from my, my old uh, boss's wife, suggested to him like hey you know why don't you make it like golf when they pitch the ball and we we're like wow that's sort of brilliant <laughs> so we did it and, yeah, wow had, uh, ahead of your time <laughs> yeah for sure it was not a pretty game at the end of the day i think that was part of the problem but you know, it was uh it shipped man we did it we uh that was good and then shortly after that that whole studio shrank down into the uh the real small iteration that i was talking about when when I was pitching skateboarding and stuff. Yeah, cool. So you talked about it just a little bit. It sounds like you were into skateboarding and then snowboarding and a fan of mm -hmm. skateboarding. Uh, had you skated as a teenager? Were you into that whole scene? Were you kind of part of that culture in the late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s? Yeah, yeah, big time. Huge, nice. like a Me too. <laughs> avid, avid, you know, religiously uh, a skateboarder when I was a kid. Um, so I started when... My cousin got me into it. My older cousin lived down at the beach. Okay. And um, uh, I would hang out at my cousin's place a lot. I was a, I was an only child. And my my single mom uh, was off working, you know, and so I would spend a lot of time with my aunts and cousins and stuff during the huh. day while she was at work. Sure. And uh, my one cousin who lived down at the beach um, had a Madrid Lucero uh, yeah. skateboard. Mm -hmm. And so it was... I could tell the difference. My my other cousins had kind of old cruiser boards from like the seventies, and or sixties even because they were older than me. Okay. And I would you know like sit on one and put my feet on the other and kind of roll out of the driveway like yeah. a catamaran or whatever. Yeah. Do yeah, that yeah. Kind of thing when I was real little. And then my my cousin showed me his board and I could kind of tell the difference. Like this is cool and he'd cruise around and he was a surfer and so he yeah. kind of cruised around and, and he looked like he was surfing on it. Yeah. I was just like that's amazing. And he actually gave me my first board um, when I was probably eleven or so, okay. uh, which was which was early, probably 
early to mid eighties, um, probably like 84, 85. Wow. And, uh, he, he gave me a, it was called a low C pool dream board yeah. and I'll, you know, remember it forever. And he, he had fixed it up with some wheels and stuff. It was one of his old boards with a big old chip out of the tail and whatever, but <laughs> I had a skateboard now and you know, some kids down the street were skating and I couldn't take any crummy skateboard over there cause they all had real stuff. And yep. you know, at the time you, you were instantly like, Oh, you're supposed to Of course. You're supposed to Yeah. Yeah. So I finally got this board that was, you know, worthy of the inner circle <laughs> in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I went down there and that was it. I was hooked, man. They, uh, one, one of my neighbor kids taught me how to Ollie. And so I was just obsessed with getting better at that and took it from there, skated all cool. through, you know, like the mid eighties to the late eighties. Yep. Kind of started waning like in the early nineties, right around the time I got my driver's license. Okay. Um, my buddies and I had started doing uh, like these homemade handrails. We built um, handrails out of two by four setups and okay. uh, PVC pipe and stuff. Sure. And I think uh, the the last time I jumped on a board at that age, um, we were we were going up the handrails instead of down. <laughs> Um, they weren't the, like the angle wasn't terribly steep, so we could go, we could cruise up it, you know, it. had maybe a, a foot and a half or two foot incline or whatever and pop off the back end. We were doing it for a little while, just doing little board slides and stuff. At the time we called them rail slides cause we had rails. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I had rails too. <laughs> so, uh, I did, I went up to do one and, you know, I had my weight too far out in front and I just split the the rail straight down the middle of me, like, you know, hit the side of my head, went straight down my ribs and then just crushed every part of my manhood all over this rail. Oh my. (laughs) Rolled off it. You know, all my buddies are dying laughing. Oh, I rolled off of it. I was in hell. And, uh, and then I think about two weeks later, you know, as I'm still a little sore and recovering, um, I got my driver's license and I was like, all right, you know what? Like, girls are responding to the driver's license way more than to the skateboard. So <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> so, back then for sure. Yeah. The car. <laughs> and that no it. brainer uh, to move on from the, from that, from your skateboarding career. But then of course yeah. you do it virtually later. So that's perfect. Yeah. And you know, I, I had stayed, um, I had stayed a fan. I had a couple of buddies who ended up getting sponsored. Uh, so I kind of just always watched it, you know, and I knew who my favorite skaters were sure. and they were still doing it and, you know, watching their decks come out at shops later and stuff like that. That's cool. Uh, so I kind of dipped my toe here and there, but yeah, I, I, for the most part was, was done by then, but I always remained a student of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Fair enough. And like the stuff people started doing, honestly, just started leaving me behind. Oh gosh. Yes. So I was just like, wow, this is, this is killer. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're going to jump into a, we have a big question set about your career at Neversoft, Chris. Sure. Um, the first question being, your primary role at Neversoft was game designer. Is that the mm-hmm. title that you started at the company with? Yeah, so uh, the way Neversoft did it early on was they didn't really get into, like, titles. Um, you know, they, your role, you were a programmer, you were a designer. They didn't have really, like, leads or directors or anything like that. It was just kind of a... You know, I, I would say ragtag, but they were really organized, man. They were really good at what they were doing. So, mm-hmm. um, but it was just a small outfit, you know. And so, yeah, I came on as game designer, um, and initially worked with uh, Scott Pease on like every aspect of what was going on with the game. Um, when I came in, they were just starting to do 
rails and you could you know grinds and and board slides and stuff okay and you could lock on to a rail uh kind of the way like ratchet and clank games did later on where it was just there's no balance there's nothing like that right um and that was kind of one of the first things i i started bringing to the table like oh you know this could be a you know it stays simple but it 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 could be deep we could bring in a balance meter and you have to kind of teeter-totter back and forth to to keep your balance so that we can make these longer rails have some kind of meaning you know like you have to maintain on it you can't just cheap it out right so we started doing stuff like that um the level that they had done for the demo was uh kind of an aqueduct that you skated down and then you ended up in um the uh what became the chicago skate park the old demo level yep um there was kind of the 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 inkling of that was a big room it had that pool that particular pool in it and a couple boxes and people would myself included you know you'd ride down the aqueduct and then you'd get to the end in that that took seconds you'd get to that warehouse level that uh, skate park pool at the end and then you you could just lose yourself, and and a half hour later, people are like, okay, well, you need to pass the controller because somebody else wants to try. <laughs> and so it it, it kind of became evident very quickly that that was the stuff people were responding to. So all the level design was started opening up. Um, Jason moved on and started doing downtown. Uh, Aaron Camerata, another one of the designers, um, was working on the the first school for the first game. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of it. So we opened everything up. Uh, they wanted to do some rings like, uh, top skater, the arcade right. game, <clears throat> excuse me. And I, you know, I, I always was saying, throw that out. Like, you don't want to do stuff like that. Like you want, we'll collect stuff, you know, we'll make it a video game, but also it's skateboarding. So you collect things, you, you have these secret spots that you can go to and, and all that kind of stuff brought in like the concept of like gaps and all that kind of stuff. Um, and shortly thereafter, uh, Scott Pease came over from, he was at Activision at the time and he came over to be a permanent part of Neversoft. And so we just kind of would sit down for the first part of the day and talk through the actual game design aspect of things. Um, and then the rest of the day I would, I'd be tasked also with doing like levels and stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that pretty well that pretty well talks about what you kind of did as a game designer and what that actually means because I think that covers like this like broad swath of like what is what does game designer actually mean? But I think you you, you pretty well covered it there. <clears throat> yeah, touched on touched on everything, man. They would you know we had a small little group. We'd we'd suggest all the music to Activision. Every little aspect of it, you know, we had our hands in because it was just a a really small team. I think that first team was maybe 12 people maybe like well, including joel who who was kind of a leader but he didn't really do the the hands-on stuff yep that lines up perfectly with what ralph told us too so i don't know if you do or not yeah. but we had ralph damato on the podcast earlier yeah, so yeah. he gave us a little insight into some of this too but to get it from your perspective as well is awesome yeah <clears throat> ralph's a good dude yeah <laughs> So, Chris, you, you said in a Game Brain interview earlier this year about uh, how you had knowledge of skateboarding that many others at Neversoft didn't have. Mm-hmm. Was was there anyone else on the team at that time who had much knowledge of the sport or the culture? Um, Pease, Pease did a little bit. He was a fan. Um, I, I actually skated, I think, more than he did. Like, I had some tricks 
at the time that I could do little, you know, 180 rock and roll stuff and whatever. Um, but uh, he, he was a fan, so he knew a little bit, but not really like, I don't think he had that kind of the, the in-depth you know, that was, that was there. So I was kind of the only one, if I can recall on that first game that did. And, uh, like Joel, you know, Joel had actually ridden a skateboard when he was a kid, but like he was coming from, you know, like surf era skaters and stuff, you know, like sure. a, the Dogtown phase and all <laughs> that. He was older than us. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until, uh, too that we we actually purposely started bringing in more people who who skated like and guys who were better than me you know they were the ones that were leaving me behind like uh we we interviewed a guy named aaron skillman one of the uh artists eventually on the sequels and beyond and um part of the interview was they had him go and get his board out of his car and he had to do, he because he, he had mentioned he could do heel flips and so oh. he they had him do a heel flip in the middle of the office you know uh, nice. Part of the interview, and we're like, "All right, you're in." <laughs> it's like, I'll, 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 you can do <laughs> that was the job interview. Can you do a hill flip? Yeah. Okay, you're good. <laughs> totally. Yeah, pretty good. I love it. That's cool. Uh, so you talked about it. And you touched on it a little bit, but it's been discussed a lot of times, and I think it's pretty commonly known that uh, Pro Skater was meant to be more of a concept gameplay wise, like Top Skater was. Um, mm-hmm. And so. Um, Sorry, I'm just getting to my uh, proper thing there. But uh, so uh, that's kind of more of a start to finish type race. It's linear. It's rather uh, rather than flat and open level. Um, did you have much influence in the shift of gameplay from levels like Downhill Jam that's similar to Top Skater to, say, the Streets level, which is mostly flat and more of an open world? Yeah, I think so. I was definitely in the camp when I came on immediately and said, you know, let's everything I do is going to be open. I don't want to do any linear levels. And so mm-hmm. both of the levels I did immediately were, were open ones. Um, and I started wanting to uh, integrate real life areas. Like there's every video you saw back then, even before it was like a thing, um, you would recognize that all these different videos, like these guys are going to the same places. Like I remember right. um, Tony had pointed me to, uh, videos that showed off like EMB, um, the Embarcadero, and, and that kind of thing uh, in San Francisco. And and looking back at like even like the Animal Chin video, they're they're down in that wharf area um, of SF even back then before it was like this this kick-ass street scene, you know, when mm-hmm. when Pan, like Plan B stuff blew up there. Yes. Uh, so. Um, you know, I wanted to get into more realistic stuff, and and San Francisco was one of the first levels I did, um, and then for the first one, I did I did the streets level, yeah, which had that entire EMB place, had the hub ledge, yeah, um, and then just had stuff too for uh, non skaters, just visual cues to real world places like you know the Chinatown Gate, yeah, um, stuff like that, and uh, and then I did I wanted to do the the chin ramp as well like as a kind of a a level in and of itself and by that time i i uh we realized like if you're going to do one kind of set area or one set thing you have to have more to do in this open area right uh so i ended up making it into roswell and that was how that one came along that was my homage to the animal chin ramp oh interesting i never knew that 
That's yeah, cool. That's and cool. then we actually made the animal chin ramp a couple times. <laughs> a couple times <laughs> um, so yeah, it was. Uh, I was definitely in the the open world exploring camp. I I loved 720 in the arcade. Yeah. Um, and the exploration part was for me. I didn't I didn't hang out in the parks. The only reason I ever went to the parks was to avoid the bees. And I would just <laughs> sit in the middle and you know just launch and do 360s and 720s over all the little obstacles and stuff. Right. Um. And then the half pipe, that was my other favorite one, like trying to figure out how people were doing like inverts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Skater Die, I, was, I would play Skater Die on my buddy's computer all the time. Um, and that was another, you know, even just, uh, you know, you could you could talk to the to the shop owner and do different events. And, and it felt nonlinear. You know, you kept you had a choice of where you wanted to go or what you wanted to do. Yeah. For so sure. that was kind of my motivation the whole time. And and there was a, a, a small camp that kind of held on to really liking the downhill stuff, the, mm-hmm. the more linear stuff. So yeah. we continued to do a couple of those. Um, Tony actually himself, he, he really liked uh, the that kind of linear movement as well. He liked them both. He uh-huh. he's he has said in several interviews over the course of time that his favorite level still is downhill jam, which is so funny yeah. to me. Yeah, for sure, right? <laughs> and then they ended up making a whole game out of it for him later. Yeah, yeah, it's you for sure. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So Joel was a big fan. They they had that top skater game uh, across the street from the Neversoft office. There was okay. a little cafe and a bowling alley across the street. And so the whole team would go over there and, and play the hell out of that. And Joel, for the most part, you know, being kind of the, the, uh, the business-minded guy, like how can we – make this you know as quickly and efficiently as we can and make it good he was just kind of prepared to do a better version of top skater like you already had your your goal in mind because there it is staring you in the face Mm -hmm. but how do we bring that to the console and just make a better version of it yes and it was it was maybe i mean even initially it was maybe on accident when i got there and that demo already existed with the aqueduct the aqueduct was that linear kind of thing and everybody just focused on the pool and stuff at the end. Right. I think I think Jason Wada laid out that that demo level. Um, so it was almost like you know you had an example here, and immediately, you know, like with me wanting to just spend all my time in the end of that demo level instead of in the aqueduct, that was it. Like the, we 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 have to focus on the. This stuff is so fun, like to explore. Like mm-hmm. we have you know all these games coming out, Banjo Kazooie, all these other you know, uh, kind of open world type things. Mario 64, um, had already happened and, and like adventure and exploration was, was just huge. And like, we could do that here. So let's do that. And and that's what we did. Yeah. I'm of the same mind as you. I like to open world. I like to explore. I'll play. I'm a big creative park guy. I'll explore creative park after creative park after I'll I'll explore anything that's new. And I just absolutely eat it up and love it because it's just interesting to be able to see and play, you know. Yeah. The linear stuff's all right, too, but I agree with you. It kind of forces you into that same line, and there's not a lot more that you can do with it. You can make yeah. it somewhat interesting, but, man, you can be so much more, I guess, innovative when you're in those more open-world concepts. Yeah, they, they gave the linear stuff to Aaron Camerata, um, okay. the guy who did the original school level. And he did both the mall and the downhill jam. And, nice. and on actually, um, some of the most fun I had that I can, you know, remember vividly on the uh, first, the development of that first game was 
uh, he and I would, would get into this little contest to see who could launch the skater, um, you know, into the stratosphere the highest. He had this section <laughs> in, the, in the downhill jam where you would come off of a, a particular, like, bump, and it would toss you up in the air, and then there's a there's kind of a tunnel, like the ramp kind of goes down into a little yep. little tiny tunnel, and it rockets you out of this really steep kicker on yep. the end of it. And uh, the physics at the time, um, it was before some of the limits were put into the physics. Like, you know, they would they would put a cap on the air and everything else. Mm-hmm. And if you hit it just right, like, uh, you could, based on your timing, like, just a split second here or there, you could get your guy just to the moon. And so we would just sit there <laughs> 20 minutes trying to see, like, oh, I just got, you know, like, I got him up off the screen. The camera couldn't catch up with him, whatever. <laughs> and trying to land it perfectly, and it would just give you this massive speed boost if you could land it on the transition on the back end. And that was awesome. It was really nice. cool. Yeah, there's a lot of fond memories for those linear ones. But, yeah, that's uh, cool. <laughs> he, he did a good job breaking him up, too. That was one of the big concerns was, like, you know, top skater, you were just running down the sidewalk. and Right. This stuff was kind of put in front of you. The mall, you know, for example, like you could you could go to the upper floor or to the lower. You could you could explore it. You know, he made um, he made exploration out of it. Sure. It just for me, it was like you'd get to the bottom of it in thirty seconds and you know, kind of recycle. Like, and at the time, that was only a limitation of the memory of of what we had to to work with. You know, the hardware mm-hmm. we didn't have enough uh, memory to work with to make the level longer because that that level is the same amount of geometry as like san francisco you know and san francisco just feels like it's so much bigger because it's spread out but it's all the same yeah yeah for sure huh let's talk about the gameplay aspects of of tony hawk now and let's get into that a little bit um so who came up with the concept of grind balance lip balance and then later manual balance when of course when that's that's a you know thing added later who was was that your idea did that kind of spill over from from your baseball uh pitch you know uh meter where where did that whole thing was was that all you (laughs) Uh, grind balance was me for sure. Cause you, you could, you locked on to rails when I first got there. And, and I, so I right, brought in the right. concept of, of balance, like actual implementation and, and, you know, going back and forth with like Mick, you know, sitting down and talking to him about, um, how it should work and what it should do. And then, you know, he would just deliver exactly what I was saying, which was, um, you know, learn to appreciate that later when, when you work with people that are that good. Right. Um, Lip balance was me. Lip tricks were me in general. Uh, wow. There, w- there wasn't really going to be any kind of focus on, on lip tricks much at all. It was, it was a lot of it was you know street, and I really wanted to kind of bring some of that vert element back to it. Um, so I wanted to have multiple, uh, just like grinds. You know, you could push a different direction and and do grinds, but if you if we go perpendicular, we can pop them up into these still tricks, and it can be kind of a finisher. You know, like if you're on a, on a ramp. You can run up and, and, you know, hold on to a hand plant longer and, and tweak it out and do whatever. And so it kind of became that. And then that, that it worked, right? Those, those two things worked really well. They weren't too difficult. People totally understood the concepts of, of holding on to it and swinging the meter back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so when two came around, um, Pease and I had already talked, Scott Pease and I had already talked about manuals. And it was just a matter of trying to figure out how to do them. You know, we knew we wanted nose manuals and regular manuals. And we were watching videos of guys like Day Wan Song and, and all these guys doing stuff across, you know, at the time, kind of low-lying, like, 
manual pads, you know, parking structures that had these long pill-shaped curb height flat spots that they do all these really long manuals and flip out and whatever. And uh, so after that, it was, you know, we, we came up with the down up and the up down to kind of quickly do it before you landed and it worked. And then the balance was exactly the same. It was all the same, um, same code. It was just presented to you vertically for, uh, for manual. So yeah. it just worked right. You know, it was the same concept. Your brain could wrap around it immediately. Yep. And that was it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, what a great idea. That's something I've always wanted to ask and I've always wondered because it just, like you said, Ratchet and Clank is a perfect example of a good big fan of those games. But, yeah, it's there's not a lot of challenge to it. You're able to hop from rail yeah. to rail, but you easily lock on and then you just cruise on and then you got to jump over things, which obviously you wouldn't do in a skate game. So uh, I've always thought that the, the balance meters were such a great addition to the gameplay to make it give it just a little more challenge to it, something very interesting. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, one of the the first open uh, directions that I played, like open level direction stuff that I was that I was playing early, was um, Jason was doing uh, downtown, the uh, nighttime level. Right, Minneapolis. Right. Yep. Yeah, and that one had, um, or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Um, and that one had some longer rails in it. Yep. And it, it just kind of became immediately apparent that, you know, there, there could be more to this. You know, that was you would you would put something in the game and it was almost reactive. Like some of the design concepts were almost reactive. Like you would put something in there and then go, oh, with a little tiny tweak like that could be so much more fun. And that's how rails work, you know, because you yeah. could lock on and just cruise like, oh, well, you could actually balance and get a little bit of that, you know, that nervous that nervousness trying to get to the end of a rail and then if that worked we could make rails that were super long you know and it was like yeah. challenging and you, you know and that leads to gaps like oh how do we how do we reward the player for actually living through this entire rail i remember there was a clip of steve caballero i think um and he did this board slide on uh, a curved like this i don't know like uh two-thirds of a spiral type of Stair, like a real big loose curve, right? Okay. But it was just, he was on this rail doing a board slide for so long, like, <laughs> you know, relative. Uh, it just seemed like he was on this thing forever. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, combined with like, oh, we've got some of these long rails. And, and yeah, it, it all, like, like I said, you know, kind of one thing leads to another. And so then, then gaps come along and then we, you know, make gaps work in different ways. Right. And, and it all kind of, you know, works, works with itself to, to just expand as you go you play by feel you know we that was one of the things like their engine being able to um you know do that iterative process in a matter of seconds mm -hmm. was a huge part of being able to really like discover this stuff you would build something try it build something you'd try it a hundred times inside of 10 minutes and really be able to kind of you know get the perfect feel out of it that's awesome and that was critical yeah and that was actually on uh they had this uh, – Mick had developed a crazy thing. They, we, we built that game on retail PlayStations with uh, with the development tools going through, like, Game Sharks. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no joke, no joke, because Neversoft was tiny and dev kits were too expensive. Oh, my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the kind of stuff. There's all the. There's always been this massive controversy amongst the hardcore community on what engines and and what development type of kit, kits were used for the various mm-hmm. iterations of the game. So that's fascinating to hear because I'm sure people there'll be some people that'll be like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. It was it was insane. It was awesome. Um, it blew me away because you know I, I had just come from that Virgin Company. We had worked on uh, N64 games and stuff. And the early hardware for like N64 was um, like a, a silicon graphics, you know, Onyx machine, which is like four times the size of a giant, you know, regular PC tower. Huh. So it was this big, huge supercomputer. <laughs> wow. And it took up a whole room and it was, you know, oh God, I can't remember. It was an absurd amount of money. And then here, here I go to Neversoft, and, and we're cranking stuff out with Game Sharks, <laughs> and, and it was, you know, it was totally that like, uh, like Nick was kind of that, that brilliant out of the box type of, of programmer. Yeah. He was, he was something else, man. Yeah, there's, I've heard there's that a reason repeatedly. this thing worked out. It's because there were some really critical, smart people in charge, and uh, trying to get this thing off the ground. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> so the the jam pack demo. And, of course, the infamous Pizza Hut demo was the first opportunity mm-hmm. that the masses got to play Tony Hawk. Um, how was it received, and do you think the game would have been as well-received without those demos coming out? Um, you know, I, honestly, I don't know. I, I think it would have been well-received. Everybody that we gave the game to to play had a great time with it. You know, people who were, like uh, into skateboarding and not into skateboarding, and mm-hmm. and that was one little hint. Like, okay, we can put this in anybody's hands, and they really start having fun trying to, you know, figure out ways to get high scores. Um, but then the Pizza Hut thing, I think the key thing there was exposure, right? Like at the time, yep. that that was going to be more eyes on it than we could possibly do under normal circumstances because the the circulation for that was so widespread. And I don't remember if it was the Pizza Hut one or the uh, the Jam Pack. Those were both in the same year. One of them was, um, one of them had like Crash Bandicoot on it, and the other one had uh, Final Fantasy. And I remember the the first time that we really knew we were onto something is that like this this game had. This first-party Sony demo for either Crash or, or this Square game, Final Fantasy, which was, um, you know, obviously a massive franchise already. Yeah. And and everyone was just talking about Tony Hawk. Like this, <laughs> this was all about Tony Hawk. And it was a uh, it was a weird feeling to think like you felt like you were in the big leagues, you know, because people were talking about your game in the same breath as this other stuff that you admired, you know, and that was. That was really cool. So yeah, those those demos were hypercritical to the success because I think that that was that was really the exposure that that it needed. We knew it was fun. We knew it was good. Everybody had fun with it. But how do you get it into a billion people's hands? And you know, hats off to whoever got that thing onto the Pizza Hut demo. That that was probably somebody at Activision. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you hear it over and over. There's two camps. I'm the jam pack camp that was the first exposure i got to tony hawk yeah but yeah the, there's just as many people that we talked to and interviewed that did pizza hut demo freddie i can't remember which was your first exposure 
Uh, that would be the pizza hut demo. Okay, so we're split right down the middle. <laughs> you got one jam packed guy and you got one pizza hut guy. Our first exposure to Tony Hawk, so they're both super successful. And I know that, uh, yeah, I didn't care about anything else on the jam pack besides Tony Hawk. So <laughs> yeah, Ape, Ape Escape. I'm looking at the the pop up now. Like yeah. Ape Escape showed up, MLB, all that stuff, and. Yep. Nobody cared. They were just like, Tony Hawk. Yeah, yeah. Summer of 99. <laughs> I, it's just so funny that it didn't come out until September, and, it, and this came out early. So you, all you had was you got to play the Chicago warehouse level. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, Skate I've, always park. Been a fan, I've always been a fan of that whole, um, uh, like, the, the, the toy quality of an actual physical game with a demo or a sneak preview or whatever like you could see uh, a video or a commercial and get excited about it but then you know when you started getting into being able to play demos of these things because cds were cheap nobody you know that was that was a big deal um and you could just go to the grocery store and buy you know the uh, playstation magazine to get the jam pack strapped to it yes and you and you had I mean, you could be, you know, like a, a lot like, you know, myself when I was a kid, like we were broke, man. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't right. play a ton of games. I would have been so stoked out of my mind if I had this, <laughs> this one disc that came on a $5 magazine or whatever. Yes. And, and you know, a, a version of Tony Hawk was on there that I could spend 20 hours playing and uh, amongst all these other games on here that I could also play. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were, there were ways to, to get your fix that weren't available before and and so yeah like that 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 too just being on a cd made that all possible love it (laughs) so so many of the game concepts that you introduced in tony hawk's pro skater one became iconic stuff like collecting skate letters hit certain tricks on certain objects etc were many of those goal-based as opposed to just score-based or parts of were they parts of the gameplay that were your brainchild um like stuff like skate, all of that came from conversations in general about the direction moving away from uh, a, being a racing, you know, ring time kind of thing uh, to becoming more of like an adventure, right? Like the exploration mm-hmm. aspect. And all those exploration games, um, Mario especially at the time, uh, really that, that whole collect-a-thon aspect kind of came to play, um, came into play, and that was an easy one. So like we wanted to have, you know, Oh, we can collect this or that skate came along and it was cool because, um, you knew what you were looking for. Like that one was really easy to realize what you were missing. You know, like sometimes when you're trying to tell people to collect five things, they don't remember how many there were. They don't remember, uh, what direction they were in skate itself. Like, uh, we kind of had a rule internally, um, right away that, you would spell it out with, with kind of a general flow. So like you would be pushed off in a direction and get the S and the Mm -hmm. S would push you off in a direction to generally get the K, you know? And, and so it was kind of this long line of, of, it was kind of a way to guide you through the level so you could see all of the different things there were to see. Mm -hmm. Um, and then other, other stuff, um, you know, like the secret tape, that was really kind of reserved for wanting people to easily see this thing. Like you could just look around and see it. We never hid it out of sight. Um, And once you saw it, you just were driven to figure out a way to get it. And that was to teach people how to look at the level in different ways. 
right, and be able to play it. Like if you saw a power line or you saw a, a, you know, it up on a patio or in San Francisco, it was up above that, that uh, like pagoda, glass pagoda. Yes. And um, you would immediately start thinking like, how in the world can I get up there? But I know I can because they put it there. So, so then you would just spend time figuring it out. And uh, that really helped people look at the levels um, in a different way, right? Like, like in a non-linear way, which I think was different. Because, but, but you know, a lot of those adventure games too. I keep going back to like Mario and that type of stuff, where they they would hide stuff, and you want to figure out how to go get it. So we were playing off of concepts that existed in other types of games, you know, and and making it work here. So we had the trick layer, we had the score layer. And at the same time, you did all those things by exploring, you know, like your best scores and everything took you through uh, areas in the levels, which was which was cool. That's awesome. So you touched on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Gaps in the franchise are they uh, yeah. end up being a key part of the games. Who came up with that idea for, for that element? Like you said, you know, you're going down this rail and at the end of it, I mean, let's talk about, you know, you're in Warehouse, for example, and you got the O. S-H-I-T gap, you know, you got yeah. that and you, you've got to make that massive grind around the, the entirety of it. You know, what, wh- whose idea were gaps? Where did, where did that come from? Um, I, you know, a lot of the skateboarding stuff, I would, I would want to say at least I was involved in. I don't remember specifically, but it had to result from conversations with um, like Pease and, and whomever. We knew, or, or I knew, that you needed to be rewarded for jumping off of certain things. That was just a, that was an aspect of skateboarding that even when I was skating, um, amongst your friends was kind of a big accomplishment, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you could ollie down some stairs, that was a big deal. Or if you could uh, do, you know, like an acid drop off of the back of somebody's dumpster or a big high, the roof of your friend's dad's truck, you know, yeah. like that was that was a huge deal. And so we knew, like this is where we want to get bonuses. And um, so we, we made it, we set it up so that the system itself work worked. And then I think that's when it kind of carried over to long rails, you know, and the balance mm-hmm. came into play and we're like, this should work on rails too. Like you should get the exact same type of bonus for, you know, grinding the entire length of, of a, a you know, a particular rail that we think is cool and is, you know, distinct. Um, the same way that you would being able to jump down a huge set of stairs or or jump from one thing and land on another that that looks like you should want to try it and it and it worked that that, that again was one of those things where it was another layer of being able to um, explore the level in a different way like if you saw two ramps next to each other and they happened to kind of line up and you could you thought to yourself like oh if I could jump off of one I might be able to land on the other one and and just doing that was satisfying because it felt cool, but then all of a sudden you got this extra bonus too you're like you got a ramp to ramp transfer or whatever and, and yeah, you were like sure. oh my god they they thought of this right like I wanted to do this and they thought of it which is awesome like super satisfying so yeah all of that kind of skate aspect like the the detail oriented skateboarding stuff I had a I had a hand in I don't specifically remember you know like sitting down and going like, we need gaps. You know, that was, sure. that was probably a conversation between me and Scott Pease and Nick and how to do it. And, you know, can we even make this work and that kind of thing. But it, it, it came from that same kind of core group. Nice, nice collaborative effort there then. Yeah, I think so. 
So we've asked this question of other Neversoft team members, and we would like to get your take on it as well. The Tony Hawk franchise has always maintained a certain feel in its gameplay. Uh-huh. It's hard to it's hard to exactly really pinpoint what exactly that means. Was it something you all focused on early on, or was it something how that kind of came together with the controls and the physics? Um, it came together early. Uh, the, the game itself, when it was, it, it was all kind of layered together. Like when you could go through a level and you know you do an air on a on a ramp, and you'd float through the air and be able to spin the character. Um, then we realized like we need a better view uh, for the camera. And as much as it just sounds like the camera is this passive thing, it becomes part of the feel, right? Because like a real skater, you know, if you if you did an air, um, you know, you're kind of eyeballing the ramp as you come back into it. And we needed to have people have that that feel. We wanted you to feel that. Like that's one thing in real skating that that um, I never could do, right? Is air like on a on a half pipe or a quarter pipe. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had launch ramps when I was a kid and I could do those and just any kind of getting off the ground felt amazing. So it was like, it was another one of those things where we didn't want to look at the, the skater from below. We wanted to kind of follow him up and, and you get that sense of height. Hmm. And then that translates to grinds, right? You lock onto a grind and eh, it's kind of boring, but now, Hey, if we do this balancing thing, it becomes a little more intense, a little more fun. There's, there's gameplay here. So all those layers kind of come on and come on, uh, stopping the character and, and taking off at a certain speed. Right. Um, all of those things play off of each other as they as they get added, you know. So, yeah, it was um, it was always really important to get the feel right. Like even just turning, like the uh, the sharpness. I think we had in the first game, like you could tighten your trucks. Um, oh, crazy! And that, that would widen. Um, like the radius that right. your your guy would travel around, um, and yeah, I'm pretty yeah we yeah you could because you get a little wrench sound effect I think if you tighten them you get like a little <laughs> you know, ratchet sound. Wow, that's uh, cool. And and those kinds of concepts were were abandoned later when we would realize like what people's settings ended up being you know most mm-hmm. of the time like this felt good let's build on that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, that whole kind of thing. It was all based on, early at least, it was all really based on um, air, like the, the feeling of floating through the air. It, you could do the grinds, you could do, you know, you could ollie here and there, and you could jump big gaps and do all that. And, and every single one of those had to feel good when you moved through the air, right? Like that was kind of the focus. And if you look at um, later games, I don't think it was until 3 that we really started cranking the speed, you know? Uh, the, the first games were a lot more, you know, I'd, I'd say, like, flowy. You know, like, you flowed through these levels and launched yeah. yourself all over the place and did all this stuff. And then 3 started, you know, the, the trend toward faster, faster, you know, more, yeah. more, more, and, and more hyper-technical and stuff like that. Because by that time, the audience was just super dialed into it. And even even the more casual members, you know, of, of that crowd could 
crank out some bitchin' combo for 100k at least, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, that. gosh, that's a really good point. I don't think I'd ever thought about that before. It's well said that it, it's all of the layers that achieve the feel. It's not just one isolated component of it. All of it together yeah. is what gives you what we what we call the feel. And I think everybody knows what we mean when we say the feel of, of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Yeah, yeah it's you know, the whole. Like, you guys, you guys would know uh, better than anybody, you know, because you're part of that hardcore scoring crowd and stuff. Like when, when other versions of the game came out and started putting in the legacy levels, like you know, oh, here's the warehouse or here's mm-hmm. the school or whatever, um, they felt old, right? Because uh, it wasn't it wasn't dialed in for that. Like those early games felt different. If you go back to them, and you if you did a side by side right now of like the timing of the warehouse, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, with with early stats set set where they are and everything else, and you set that in a in a side by side with the new Tony Hawk one and two, yeah, you immediately see the difference in the in the physics and the way things move. Like, you could come down that ramp and clear the half pipe and get through that secret glass room in the older game um, much differently and much more uh, simply than you can now, where you mm-hmm. got to stat up a little bit and. And you're you're tackling the level a little a little differently, and they did that and and had success. Whereas some of the older uh, versions of the game, where they were putting legacy levels in, they just didn't feel right. You know, the game had moved past yeah. those designs, and they they felt sparse and old, and they didn't have the the types of uh, obstacle setups that you were looking for to mm-hmm. get big combos. Right. Because that's not what they were, you know, at the time. Like, combos came later, right? They, mm-hmm. they, like, the chaining tricks together was cool for scores, but that didn't really explode until, well, the manual was the first. But, like, three, you know, yeah. kind of was the, the, we tied everything together with the revert, and then it went online, and then it was out of our hands. Like, there sure. were immediately people that were slaughtering us online. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. So many... Uh... Many people that we've talked to have expressed that Tony Hawk 2 ended up being what they had hoped Tony Hawk 1 could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel that early on it was important to change up the gameplay much, or was it more of a refinement of the formula you had already established in 1? Yeah, it was It was definitely a refinement. We didn't feel like we needed to change anything. We just, the entire time we were working on 1 and the deadline was coming up to be finished, we knew there was so much more we wanted to do. Right. You know, like, we wanted to expand on on the skaters. We wanted to expand on your ability to, like, buy boards. And, I mean, like, uh, nowadays, myself included, like, collecting skateboards is, is kind of an art. You know, like, you, you now appreciate the graphics and things that you took advantage of. And they're just these awesome canvases for this this whole, like, art movement. I have, you know, got a ton of boards and stuff on your wall that are so iconic for that for that crowd. So we knew, like, we wanted to be able to switch up the, the, you know, the colors and the decks, and we wanted to really blow all that stuff out. So we brought in concepts like money. That came straight out of 720, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah for sure. You know, like, being able to pick up money on the ground, like, that was just, sorry, Atari, we blatantly ripped that off. Like, we put, <laughs> we put money in there. It was another thing that you could see floating in the air, you know, all sure. of those things that you could see floating in the air to explore the level a new way. So yeah, everything was an expansion. Um, manuals were an expansion of uh, how much fun we were having um, putting, putting scoring combos together. Mm-hmm. 
spreading the levels out more was a reflection of the fact that you could take the manual and run it to another place. Stuff like school two, uh, I, I, I did the school two level and spread things out on purpose really, really far. Like there's that, that whole front area is super spread out. And that's because we, I wanted you to um, be on the kind of the, the last, the tail end of your balance of a manual by the time you linked it to another thing and you just got that relief of getting onto a rail and getting your speed back and doing all <laughs> sure. that thing. Yeah. And that all worked out, worked out rad. Like, you know, and that, even that, like that level too, uh, that game, the whole game, all the new secret areas and stuff, those were expansions on, on, you know, we touched on secret stuff in the first game, but a lot of it was just a uh, really easy stuff. Um, you know, and in this case, you know, getting onto the rooftop of the of the school in the first game was neat, um, but you know, it was kind of necessary. Right. And we knew, like, we want way more of that. You know, like, we want actual secret levels. You have to do a thing to activate or get this whole area that you didn't even know was here. And so that was uh, that was another reason that school was one of my my favorites. Like, uh, I really liked Easter eggs. Like, I loved. Um, I was a big Mortal Kombat addict and uh you know learning all the different fatalities and figuring that stuff out and they had so many easter eggs as they went along like i was such a huge fan of that stuff i loved codes and you know big heads and nba jam and all that kind of stuff (laughs) and so we yeah that we we started just kind of dialing in on all that that secret that was uh mortal Kombat was a huge influence on the special moves you know that was um oh sure uh, another thing when i came on to the first game um Bob Bernquist had done uh, a one-footed Smith grind um, in a, he did it in a contest or there was like footage of him doing it. And it was kind of debated whether or not it was an accident. Like his foot had slipped off when he was just trying to do a Smith Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he recovered and then kind of made it a thing. And so Bob had this signature trick now where he could do these one-footed Smiths. And so they were like, yeah, we're going to have you be able to, jump on a rail and do that and yes. that was another thing where i came in and said like hey um you know we should make this uh, a secret thing this is i love mortal Kombat. you know we brought i brought in the um the special meter like you're going to build this whole thing up you want you want to play and then you get an opportunity to do this secret trick and it's worth a crap load of points and you got to do a little button combo to get it to work and so that, that whole thing kind of layered in that way that's awesome and, and again you know like all that stuff just with two, we just built on it, you know, like you right. have multiple secrets and, and multiple signature moves and, and not everybody's is a signature. Like some of them are just cool, fun specials and, you know, they started getting ridiculous and stuff, but <laughs> you, you can only have so many real life secret moves before you have, you know, Chad Muska had to pull out a boom box. And right. That was right. actually just fun and cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and of course that becomes, you know, the signature of it, you know, over time is, is it's, it's got the realistic aspect of skateboarding to a degree, but it also has a nice arcade feel, which that of course later the Sims take on the Sim type simulation type skateboarding titles take over for the more hardcore crowd. But yeah. I've always been a big fan of the arcade style. So I like those kind of, you know, uh, defiance of reality kind of things, you know, that you guys yeah. added and threw in there, just like Mortal Kombat, you know? I mean, <laughs> you're not going to throw a, a, a thing into a guy and rip his heart completely out of his chest in a fighting match <laughs> with him, so. <laughs> For sure. <clears throat> 
All right, yeah, let's talk about. Was, sorry, uh, go ahead. Was good. No, 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 it's all good. Just yeah, I was just gonna say. So, uh, so we get to we get to Tony Hawk Three. It's the first PlayStation title to include online uh, online multiplayer for for yes, PlayStation Two. That's, right. That's um, a big pride point. Yeah, absolutely. It's it was <laughs> super super impressive. Were you involved with the team that helped determine uh, the gameplay for online? Yeah. So uh, online was actually done. I. Uh, all the way back to Virgin, um, I had befriended a guy named Steve Gannum um, over baseball, in fact. Uh, oh, he was cool. a Dodgers fan. I was an Angels fan. And uh, so we became we became fast friends. And he was working on with me on the casino game, the little casino game oh, yeah. that I, okay. I went back to. Um, and we had a great working relationship. He was a, he was a little bit younger than me, uh, but he was basically my age. Um, and he was brilliant. Like another one of these programmer guys that were just immediately, you could tell these guys were heads and tails above other people, you know? Hmm. <clears throat> so he was one of those types. Uh, and when I left to go to Neversoft, he stayed behind and was working on other stuff. And I immediately started trying to poach him to, uh, to bring him over to Neversoft, <laughs> and he was hesitant to do it. He didn't come. I tried to get him on one. He wouldn't he? Wouldn't come. And then the game became a big hit. Right. And part way, I think like the very tail end of two, um, I finally convinced him to come over, and he jumped on. And we knew we were moving on to three, and we knew we were moving on to PlayStation uh, two. So he started doing uh, all the tools for the new version of the engine because we, you know, we had new hardware and we had to, to make a new version of the, the engine itself. Mm-hmm. And so he started doing all the tools stuff. So all of the tools for the games from then on out were, were his tool set. Wow. And uh, he had a personal interest in online. And when we found that kind of thing out, we realized uh, that there were third-party um, adapters, network adapters right. that you could plug in. And I think it was like USB adapters. Yep. And uh, so we, we, we had asked them, like, hey, man, is it, do you think it could work that we put this online? You could play people. And he was like, yeah, definitely. Because we, we pointed to um, – we had a Dreamcast in the office at Neversoft. And I think at one point they were looking at, like, Fantasy Star. That was maybe the first online game – uh, for consoles, at least, okay, where where it was like a shared experience. You know, it wasn't um, just like leader. Like back, way back on Genesis, you could do. I forget what the the expansion thing was called, but you could uh, you could create leaderboards and stuff for for games. Like even way back then, but you couldn't play them together, right? You didn't have right. this two player experience. So, and we had uh, all of the uh, local split screen stuff that we wanted to translate to online. So all of the online stuff, every 100% of it was done by Steve Gannum. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and that was the thing. As time went on, like Steve, like I would, you know, help with ideas. Scott Pease got really deeply involved in the online modes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would, but Steve, like he, it was a one man show. He was just building all that stuff and translating all of the different modes we already had into, um, into the online and working with, um, uh, God, I, I can't remember the. It was, I don't think it was Linksys. It was um, what was the name of the network adapters that we supported? But it was funny because uh, Sony was working on their own network adapter, and that right. was you know, as time went on, we were we were like, hey, we want to get involved here, and so they they gave us all this technical support to help us get stuff working, 
But at the same time, they had their own plans with, um, there was a shooter game uh, that they were, they were doing internally. SOCOM, yeah. And that was going to be their pack-in with the Sony official network adapter, the PlayStation network adapter. Yes. And, And we actually beat them to the punch like we were we were done and they didn't have anything ready for us so we went out there supporting all these third-party adapters and then a couple months later or a month later or something like that socom comes out with the official packing claiming you know like oh it's a first for no online and everything else and and you know of course we were like no wait a minute that's not true we would tell that everybody you know we were just a bunch of proud punks back then so we would tell everybody we could like magazines we would correct them and that's you know, funny <laughs> activision at the time like activision was on our side and they would make a big stink out of it you know cause, sure cause it was a big marketing that's good marketing <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah yeah it was good but yeah that was uh and and you know from from there on like four and uh thug all that stuff that was all steve for the online stuff wow and then you know some of the some of the later iterations you know uh um three uh tony hawk three in general the uh the spidey team the spider-man team Hmm. um came along and merged into us and so we were this big much bigger team for for three and the lead from the spider-man game kind of took the lead on three in general and i think uh some of the the later modes that uh, like you eventually I think in was it th- the first thug like you could start doing the ones where you did a kickflip to shoot a fireball and oh like, right? yeah and firefight firefight yeah, yeah. Fire all this crazy stuff like holy <laughs> boy, man. yeah that was when you know you could just throw skateboarding out the window and make whatever you wanted <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah so, uh... Steve actually ended up being my uh, we we left together to form Supervillain Studios. Oh, we okay. Long-standing relationship. Interesting. Um, recently, here on um, this year, we've a big topic of discussion has been the way online lobbies are structured on modern console games. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple voices within our community have raved about how how the lobbies used to be on Tony Hawk's Three through Thaw, and they helped the way they were built helped us foster a larger community to be formed. Were you part of the conversation on how those, the online play was managed? And if so, what led to the decisions to the structure it, how it became, did you take any inspiration from other online titles at the time? Yeah. So, uh, the online stuff that I had a lot of experience with, um, primarily was red alert from, uh, from that Westwood company that I came from, what, you know, Virgin had turned into, Mm -hmm. uh, the command and conquer series. And, um, oh, okay. Yeah, so a lot of that, a lot of the aspects of, of the way the lobbies worked were borrowed from PC online uh, because you know they were ahead of the game as far as yeah, you know, without a doubt, for sure. Um, and so you know, you would, you would, uh, I can't remember specifically at what point you were able to kind of skate around until the game started and and get things going, but yeah, all, all that stuff kind of came from um from pc and the early like the early structure of it was all borrowed from the general concept of a lobby you know like mm-hmm. uh the way matchmaking worked and we knew we wanted more than two people in this game and all that kind of stuff 
Yeah, it's interesting to chime in and, and dovetail on this. I mean, just to be completely frank and transparent, it, this conversation stems with the way that they've done online play for one plus two, and mm-hmm. it's strictly matchmaking. They did add the ability to to create private lobbies, which is great, and it, and it gives you kind of some of the feel of the older stuff. But the one aspect that a lot of kind of the hardcore community is is um, feels is a little bit lacking right now is there isn't the ability to host a public lobby where you can just set a room up and say this is an eight-player room and it's on this level and join this room and we're going to play. And so yeah. that's one of the parts that a lot of people would say that's what helped formulate the community that still exists today because nobody knew each other. So this is, yeah. how, this is how you got to know each other, and that was a great way to meet – you know, people that you, maybe you've never known before, or you could get you know members that are part of your clan or your group or whatever you want to call it. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's something that you know a lot of people have felt, and that's one thing that you guys really nailed in those early games, and it really fostered that sense of community. Yeah, you know, I, I gotta wonder too, though, if part of that was based on um, the size of the audience, right? Like because you would see familiar names. Mm. Uh, and you, and you started to kind of build, um, exposure to the, to the people that were good, right? Like you would be able sure. to tell like, Oh, so-and-so, uh, that guy's bitching. And, um, th- at the time, all of that was new on console. So, so to be honest, like the, the, the feature itself was, you know, groundbreaking and everything, but the, the audience wasn't nearly, uh, what it would eventually become. So, mm. It was kind of a more, uh, like a more intimate group of people. I think you know it was just a smaller setting, and you, it's it's easier I think to build community that way than it is to do it when it's just random. You know, because the audience is so big, it's just you're, you're never going to see the same person twice, whether you want to or not. You know, now you've got you know all the friends groups and everything to to organize sure. and whatever. Right. Um, right. But back then. Um, you know, even through like Delphi and, and all those forums mm-hmm. and stuff, you'd see those you'd see those, those names come through your games and your lobbies, and, and and then you could hook up and figure it all out. So yeah. that yeah, I, I think it's kind of a different it's a different beast nowadays. You know, that's fair. That's well said. So, so we had we fast forward to Tony Hawk Four, and mm-hmm. so in Tony Hawk Four, you express right. one of your favorites for sure. But uh, I, by the time that's released, do you do you think by then you guys were starting to feel the effects of what else can we do, and had you started to run out of ideas, or were there still fresh concepts and multiple great ideas uh, brought to the table? I think it was getting harder to do. Um, it was harder to make the the one new thing that really set the game apart from the net from the last, like from, from one to two, we added manuals and that, you know, opened up the floodgates from two to three, we added uh, reverts and that linked the whole world together. And then what do you do next? Right? Like I think for the big concept was breaking the two minute timer. Yes. But then in terms of gameplay and combos, that was the one where we did spine transfers. And so we could, that that opened up the way we laid out the levels a little differently. You know, mm-hmm. like we could do, we could now access secret areas differently by, you know, just hopping over and, and landing on the other side of a rooftop you didn't know, or or zipping up to a ramp up top, and triggering over to the front of another one. Um, but that that particular bit of gameplay was not nearly as impactful or like you know, 
experience expanding as like manuals and reverts and stuff like that. Right. So there was, there were still ideas, but they were becoming more subtle, but the, uh, for four, the, the big deal was, was breaking the timer, you know, like breaking that whole thing up and making it so that everybody loves skating around in these levels. And now you could just do it endlessly at your own pace. So I think that was kind of a bigger deal, um, in terms of features. And then when we moved into thug, um, the big thing was to bring more meaning to like the create a skater and it was, okay, now we can tell a story. Now we can do all this. And that one also had getting off your board for the first time, right. which honestly we had discussed all the way back on two. We had started wow. talking about like, because, um, there were areas where I'm trying to think of a particular one, like leap of faith in school too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of my, one of my failed ideas, but you know, it's, it, it holds a special place in my heart. Um, <laughs> Mick humored me and, and put in, uh, I wanted to do big landings. I wanted to have you, uh, if you jumped off a gigantic roof, I wanted you to have to like soak it up when you hit the ground in order to pull it off or you would bail. Uh, oh, and so sure. you have that, that whole big drop mechanic where you like, right. you were supposed to tap a button when you hit the ground and it would allow you to not bail out of it. Um, uh, and that was all, that was all based on the real life footage of Jamie doing the leap of faith. Right. Um, so, you know, all, all the way back to that particular spot, we had started talking about, well, you know, do we do this where we do the, the, the big drop or I, you know, you got to build a ramp to always get back up there because, this is a big daunting spot and you have to go all the way around if you can't get off your board. Like what if we could just get it off and run back up the stairs and do it again? Um, and, and that was kind of the motivation for it. And then by the time it actually happened, um, it was talked about, you know, being integrated into your combo. Like it was this new move with the little timer, you know, you climb mm-hmm. up and keep combo going as long as you're within whatever, two seconds. Yep. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, a, a variation of what we wanted, you know, the purpose we wanted it to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so it became kind of, it became a weird feeling, at least for me, like it always felt weird because you were, you were kind of rushed and it was a, a, a mechanic to just bridge tricks and stuff. Um, but it was cool. I mean, you know, that the Jersey level where, where you first started doing it, like being able to grab onto a, a rooftop ledge and just get up there. And that, that helped uh, the feeling of exploration a lot, I think too. Um, but again, like that particular move was not quite as impactful as previous, you know, jumps. And so at that point, I think it was really becoming difficult to, uh, to get that big new thing. And then, you know, thug two for me, like, I I think I've said it in interviews before, like that one for me is the one where we kind of jumped the shark, you know, with all the... (laughs) the vehicles and all that kind of stuff. Like everything was kind of being pushed on it. The first, it was the first thug game, right? Where, where in New Jersey, you, uh, you drove around in the car. Yes. Yeah. So that, that one, I, I never cared for that. Like to me, that always just felt like this thing that was way too bonky and way too fast being shoved in this level that wasn't really built for it, (laughs) but it was kind of a proof of concept for the most part. And so it just proved we could do other things. Um, and then, you know, that was one of the things later that like uh, Activision kind of latched on to as, as to, you know, a- areas to push for the next game. And that's, you know, Thug 2, it was a requirement, basically. Like we, 
we were kind of told at one point to figure out what vehicle our level was going to be built around, you know, so that they, it felt a little more cohesive. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot of opinions there, <laughs> yeah. but I know we're going to run We're going to run short on time here. Yeah. Let's talk about this real quick. Uh, you actually covered a couple of questions in there in your comments uh, about uh, Tony Hawk four there. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about some of the level design in Underground 1. And among the hardcore community of players in the series, there's this neck-and-neck -neck race right now for the most favorite level, Manhattan and Thug 1 and East L.A. in Tony Hawk's American Wasteland. Did you do any of the level design for Manhattan? No. Uh, um, I'm trying to remember who did that. That might have been, been Wada. No, you know what? He was probably... that. Yeah, I think it was. I think that was him. Okay. Um, I did two to three levels on every game up through Thug 2. Thug okay. 2 was the last one that I did direct uh, design on. My, my company, Supervillain, actually worked on Wasteland, so we had uh, I was kind of training designers to do stuff. We did the Vans level. Oh, okay. Park. Um, and then there was another one I wasn't a huge fan of, but we did uh, one of the secret uh, one of the secret levels um which was like a like an L.A. apocalypse kind of thing. The ruins. Uh, ruins. Yeah, that was. Well, that was that Thug Two. That's American that Wasteland. Wasteland. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe that was it. I'm trying. I'm getting them confused with That's the one okay. where you go to you yeah. go to hell and all that stuff. <laughs> that was a. That That's was one of ours too. <laughs> <laughs> That's in the triangle in uh, in uh, Underground Two. I did triangle. That was a different. Okay. One. There was there was so there was one where you started off in like a spaceport, and you could teleport to hell, <laughs> and uh, that was uh, and like a Mayan temple, and mm -hmm. it was all like all this yep. big hodgepodge of like teleports. Yep. Uh, but the other one, the uh, the triangle, I did that one, and that was. Um, oh yeah, pro skater. Kind of a, I said. Yeah. It <laughs> that was. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, a throwback to. Um, was it Tony Hawk Two where we did Skate Heaven? Yes. The secret. Yeah. So Skate Heaven was a collection of real life places, and I think that was the first time we did the chin ramp. And I helped out uh, a guy to do that one, um, but we wanted a, a, a another spot at the time. The game was big enough to the point where we could we could start paying homage to our own games, like our own former games, and that's what Triangle <laughs> was. Like there's a uh, there's the pirate ship ramps that are that were taken out of um, the skate uh, the skate art. Skater Island, Island level, yeah. um, and then I kind of made those a little bit different and better, so they they moved. And then uh, you could go in the tunnel, and I put more aliens in there because I just I just couldn't get over my Roswell stuff, so <laughs> I had to revisit <laughs> that. Um, and then the chin ramp was back in there, uh, out in the middle of the island. Like all that stuff was kind of we were starting to we were starting to uh, come full circle and just pay homage to our own games. That's interesting. I love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, all those, all those stuff. Like uh, the first game I did, um, Streets, the San Francisco level, and Roswell. Uh, those were specifically mine. Second game I did um, Venice and uh, School Two and Marseille. Like that was, uh, I, I built a lot of the, the the way contests worked, and I made like a scriptable system so that we could have contests, you know, work uniformly through the game. And then in the third one, I did uh, Rio and the Foundry, 
and something. I feel like I did another one there. I don't quite remember. The fourth one, I, I did San Francisco um, and was what, uh, what was that? What else was in four? What other levels were in four? College, Shipyard, um, yeah, London, yeah. Chicago, which was from Matt Hoffman's Pro BMX2, Kona. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I did Kona. Kona. I did Kona. Wow. Um, and that's a real. That was a real place. Yes. Was, uh, yeah, that was an interesting trip. And I was so, yeah, say, uh, I bet you that was a good reference trip then. <laughs> oh my god, that was amazing. Yeah, it was really. You know, it was cool. Um, me and Aaron Skillman, the guy who had to do the hill, hill flip for his interview. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we flew out to Florida. Um, we got up at 7 o'clock in the morning to get down to the park before it opened. Um, and they gave us access to, you know, go in and take a bunch of pictures and everything. Right. And uh, uh, there was another kid that was down there. He was probably 12. And I was in the, the snake run. We were, we were done taking all of our pictures. And I was trying to do the snake run. And, you know, my days were, were well behind me. And it was kind of <laughs> like... Um, it was, it was sketchy. It was scary. And then here comes this kid and he pumps down part of the snake run and he just blasts out of it. He does wow. like probably a, maybe like a seven foot air out of this thing into the bowl that's, that's next to the skate run. And he's just pumping away, like ripping. Like, I don't remember who the kid was. I don't remember if he ended up being a pro, but phew, that kid was gnarly. <laughs> um, I love but it. But yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that that snake run. So yeah, that was my fault too. I know that's one of the the worst goals in the entire franchise. Is, uh, <laughs> snake run slalom. But uh, well, I apologize. <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of people have trouble with the misty flip over the hut. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that one I stand by. <laughs> if you if you hit the if you hit the right spot coming out of there, you can nail it. I love it. <clears throat> yeah, uh, that was um. That Sorry, was, go ahead. That was good stuff. Yeah, and then you know, um, oh, I'm looking at your chat. Yes, the campsite was real. The campsite was a. Uh, they took us back there. It was a. Uh, it was a homeless encampment. It was like a big homeless kind of. Uh, oh really? Yeah. So in the, in, the, in the back right corner, you just skate out into the grass and look in the fence. There's the you know it's called a bum camp or whatever. It was really it was disturbing. You know, it's sad. It was yeah, a lot sure. Of, uh, there was a lot of really hard life going on in the in the forest behind behind kona <laughs> wow yeah, yeah. But we put it in there because it was part of the it was part of the local flavor you know yeah absolutely yeah it's funny i didn't even notice that was there until like a way 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 way, way later um and yeah. then somebody pointed it out to me and i was like oh crazy i've never noticed that before because you're paying attention to the skating not the environment right yeah yeah so. that was just more of the uh bonus if you if you explored yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about – let's just dive back into this and unpack it just a little bit more. And also, Chris, too, I know that uh, we kind of talked about maybe uh, kind of topping it about two hours. I want to make sure you're okay sure. for a few more questions. We won't take – Yeah, yeah. I'm we good. won't obviously get through all our entire list of stuff we have left. But if you've mm -hmm. got just a little bit more time, we'll at least get through maybe some of the Neversoft stack, and, and, then, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. 
Yeah, all good, man. Cool. Good all go. right, sounds good. So let's let's unpack this a little bit more. You you talk about Thug Two and it ending up being completely over the top. You're not going to get a lot of arguments from anybody here. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds like much of what you guys was uh, included was based on requests from the publisher, not necessarily what you guys wanted to do at NeverSoft anymore. Do you yeah. think it had do you had you guys talked amongst yourselves? Uh, had it even gotten a little too ridiculous for even you all? Uh, some of us, yeah. There was definitely uh, the camp that was coming from the older games. We were, we were kind of growing a little, you know, thinking that it was getting a little stale. Maybe more so than some of the newer designers and stuff that were coming on later. Yeah, but like the, like the, you know, the original game was twelve people. I think the second game was fourteen or fifteen. The third game was like. 40 because the two teams had come together and grown and then by the time you were on the thug games it was you know you were approaching 100 people Mm -hmm. um and so you know with all that coming on you had new you had new ideas and they were wanting to go certain directions and you know some of us that were the older guys um we were you know i don't say we're over it it was still fun to work on but um it was just getting really really insane like it was losing sight of the skateboarding stuff and there were, you know, there were certain directives we'd get from Activision. Um, they were, for the most part, pretty hands-off. They trusted us. Everything that we were doing was, you know, doing great for them. So they were just happy. And Joel was still definitely, like, the guy who kept them off our back, for sure. Um, but at one point, like with 4, uh, I remember the first time uh, we, we felt the impact of outside influence like you know mm-hmm. activision activision was kind of reflecting on what they could gather from the community right like they they didn't really they're not the evil empire or anything like that they're just <laughs> you know they're they're other parts of the dev, the dev effort that are trying to help steer it right and some of it's misguided because they're they're less attached to it or whatever but sure the first time we felt their influence i think was was after four came out um they came back at us and said uh, that the game was way too hard. And um, like a lot of the, they wanted us to, to loosen up on a lot of the specific skate tricks and things that you did. And they wanted us to focus our effort on on something that, you know, a casual crowd could come in and, and get behind more again. And that's kind of where the story mode stuff right. started to come together. Um, because 4 was really aimed, uh, you know, not aimed at, like a hardcore skater crowd but it was more of a skating game than the others because it it started dialing in on skate tricks specifically like oh you know do a flip in to a manual across this set of tables and flip out you know specifically like things that a casual gamer would have to think about ahead of time like okay so i need to go like you know i'm gonna go left square i'm gonna hit the manual i'm gonna go right square coming out so that it's not the same trick whatever you know but if if you were following skating or if you were a a fan of skating it would just kind of it it existed in your brain already right like oh i can just do like flip to manual and flip out Mm -hmm. and and it was a different it was a different mindset and that that crowd is smaller that's a more hardcore crowd right activision's impression of it from you know their focus testing and everything was like oh we're we're getting into territory where this is too hard for the masses. And so we need to go different directions. And that was all kind of a perfect storm, you know, like the jackass stuff was all happening at that right. time. And, yep. Yep. and so they, they just glommed on to what the, what the trend was, you know, or what the scene was. And, and let's focus on that. Let's do, 
you know, let's do graffiti. Let's, let's blow stuff up. Let's do all this out, you know, whatever. Right. right. Yeah. It's been said many times in this, in, in our, in our community. And it's sometimes hard to realize when you're in, in kind of a niche community that in, in the grand scheme of the sales of what went on for this series over the course of time, the really yeah. hardcore crowd, I, I, let's just be honest. They were a drop in the bucket. Compared yeah. to the masses. And that's yeah. just the hard reality of it, whether you want to know it or not. So I've always understood and I've always been more forgiving towards both the development efforts as well as the publishing efforts to say they've got you've got to make money on this. Otherwise, you can't continue to make it. You can't support a team of 100 people if the game isn't successful in making money and it's only catering to this really small niche crowd. So, yes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the reason it was, you know, it wasn't just a hit. It was a pop pop culture yes phenomenon. and that's yes. because you know the the uh, the outside crowd latched on and and it became which was cool because then it even grew by leaps and bounds it grew the hardcore audience you know it made hardcore fans of skateboarding and new skateboarders out of people who never would have picked it up which was yep that was that was impressive to see that was really a cool cool feeling like to see kids getting into it absolutely i can't even imagine <clears throat> And then you sprain an ankle once, and you're like, all right, I'm done with that. <laughs> in real life, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so despite all the shenanigans surrounding Thug 2, many fans consider the engine of Thug 2 to be one of the best versions. Um, by then, you had refined the engine over and over again, and uh, had become something special. The, the quite popular Thug Pro mod is actually based on the Thug 2 engine. Yeah. Does that Does that surprise you to hear that? Perhaps an engine that you may ha have felt had become too refined is actually considered to be one of the best engines. No, I don't. I don't think the engine itself was too refined. I just think what we were doing with it, uh, you know, in, in the, the direction of gameplay and the direction of like extra added stuff, that was where we really jumped it. The engine itself just got better and better and better. Um, I, I think for me, uh, the, ab the the peak for that engine, I think, was probably Wasteland when we had uh, just the the introduction of like streaming zones, so that you never had to come out to a loading screen. Right. Uh, that was it. Was basically the Thug Two engine, obviously, with this new streaming setup. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me. Like the speed and and the the combo uh aspect of everything had really been dialed in and by that time we were responding to what we were seeing online you know like we were seeing the way people were playing and we started building you know and tuning the game accordingly um a lot of like, like the thug pro stuff still is kind of like bug exploits you know um which are crazy impressive and i would i don't I, like i don't know who in the world figured out that you could uh, do a grab in the middle of like a wall plant or a, or a wally and get some rocket boost out of it like and consistently figure that out because holy shit that's not what we built <laughs> you know, like, listen uh, up proverbs you guys have, yeah. you guys have found stuff that the that the team never even imagined could have been done with the engine yeah. so nice work <laughs> yeah. yeah the uh like the wally itself just you know was just a cool way to to blast up to a uh, second story balcony, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, by the time like Thug Tooth came around, I think that was the one um, where we had the wall wall plants in general, or were they called wall plants, where you actually went straight into a wall and bounced back, like, in push. the opposite direction. 
Well, yeah, wall the plan, wall push. Wall push, yeah. Wall push is, yeah. yeah, they're they're similar, but so yeah, I did uh, I did the Australia level in that game, and there's a there's a section over in the far corner with a bunch of um, uh, like balconies, like balcony railings, and you go back and forth, bouncing off the walls, so that you can climb up and up and up and up, mm-hmm. almost like climbing a ladder, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then you just end up in this really high part of the level, and that was kind of the last. That was that was kind of the most fun I could make out of that, you know. Um, right. Because it wasn't like uh, it wasn't this big expansive maneuver, but it, but in terms of like the combo crowd, you know, it became critical. Like right. that that little move keeps you going uh, anytime you run out of room. Every, any given ramp or rail that leads into a wall is now playable, and so that you know, I guess for that crowd, yeah, it, it did blow them up even more. Um, but I was always looking for ways to like make that stuff on the exploration front you know so like i did that so that you could get up high and get a new vantage point in the level or go mess up the billboard or you know do all that kind of stuff do the big acid drops from four stories up yeah that's what a lot of the that's what a lot of the tech crowd ends up doing is these levels have all been played for so long and for so many years they'll use these mm-hmm. techniques that they found for exploits to to open up new opportunities of exploration when you can boost plant to the basically the top of the ceiling and you're you're at the top of the skybox and then you can acid drop into a ramp and then how that throws you you know so you can basically do a, a spine transfer over a building then yeah. you're like this is a new way to play the game yeah yeah which is cool because you know the the code itself is never it's never engineered to handle that because you just don't you, you know the the code looks for like the nearest ramp in your line of sight that mm-hmm. your particular uh, trajectory, like your air could move toward. Right. And so under right. normal circumstances, you're just, you're jumping up 20 feet in the air or whatever it is. Yep. Um, okay. And another ramp, you know, a little ways away, you could at the peak of your jump, make sure that you click over to it. Well now, like you can, you can do the code itself is just again, looking based on your height. And so, your height is 62 miles in the air, so you can transfer to the other side of the level. No sweat. <laughs> there you and, go. And there's a little bit. There's a little look uh, underneath the, the the covers on this deal for the for the prov yeah. crowd. I like it. Uh, so <laughs> as you're getting as we're as we're continuing on down here, kind of the the uh, timeline here. Uh, Supervillain Studios is uh, notice is established in January of 2004, co-founded yep. by yourself and Steve, as you've mentioned before, Ganem, mm-hmm. uh and Tim Campbell. Uh, according yep. to your, uh, the company website, Supervillain Studios was founded on the belief that the key to developing outstanding video games is to combine talented developers with a creative and fulfilling environment. Uh, what were yeah. the circumstances? that led to you forming the studio in the middle of development of Doug 2, which shipped in October of 2004? Um, it was kind of a, it was a combination of things. Uh, Steve and I were still living in Orange County and, and commuting out to the Valley to work on, uh, to work at Neversoft. And that's mm-hmm. uh, about a two and a half hour drive. That's a long ways. One, yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was insane. But, you know, obviously the, the motivation was was the game and the big hit and everything else. Well, we were part of the a group that was kind of getting bummed out on the size of the of the company and team. It was getting really big. It used to be really intimate. You knew everybody. Um, you uh, you would work really closely and have these really great relationships with people, and it translated into the work. 
you know, like you were close to the artists that was working on your, your level designs. You were close to the programmers that were doing the, the new stuff. And um, I, I felt like the community, you know, atmosphere inside, the team atmosphere was, was much better when it was smaller. I've always felt that way. Like I've, uh, you know, and by the time Thug 2 was happening, the team was massive. We used to have these, um, one, the, the way we discovered this, we used to have, uh, they would get an ice cream cake when it was your birthday, right? And they'd call everybody out to the conference room, um, and there'd be an ice cream cake sitting on the table, and everybody would sing this, you know, horrendous, screaming <laughs> version of happy birthday to you and whatever. I love and it. It was awesome, you know? It was just yeah. attention to detail, like it was a small company, and Joel would light the candles and kick it off every time. And, nice. Um and uh, it was it was just it was cool, and that felt like one of the things that was a benefit to the small nature of it. Well, as more and more people were joining the studio and joining the teams, um, we started having like two of these ice cream cake parties a week, wow. you know, because there were so many people, wow. and then they were and then they were shared, you know, like this one is for three different people on Tuesday and on Friday we have another one for six other people and wow and you would you would come out to these things and the the room was getting more and more full and you didn't recognize the the faces anymore like I don't know who that person is mm -hmm. and my my daily routine where I'm working on my stuff or whatever isn't going to have us even cross paths which started to get kind of <laughs> You know, we, we yep. were losing it. We really liked about that whole intimate team. Yeah. So Steve and I decided um, we, we wanted to jet. We wanted to make a, a game and we wanted to do, or we wanted to make a company and we wanted to get back to um, a really hardcore, talented group of a smaller group of people who could get stuff done. Sure. Um, so we told... Joel that we were gonna we were gonna leave we're gonna work on our own thing and you know if it didn't work out you know we were just gonna go get other jobs or whatever but our time you know with Neversoft had kind of come to an end sure. um, but we were still kind of in key roles uh, I was still you know one of the primary guys doing their their levels and stuff and Steve was still uh, the main guy doing their online work mm -hmm. and their and their tools he was still maintaining all the tools um, and so in, Neversoft actually turned around and, and worked out a deal with us and said, hey, if you, why don't you keep working on the game remotely? As things get bigger, it'll just be good for us to figure out a way to work with remote teams because, you know, that's coming. There's, there's no avoiding it. We're going to have to start working with other teams that way. And right. so you guys would be a great way to do that. And they ended up being our first contract. Um, they, we did uh, – we, we left – during the development of Thug 2, and we finished Thug 2 while we were supervillain, while we were working remotely. Oh, wow. And then uh, that relationship worked out really good, and Activision was um, really excited that it, it was working. So they actually gave us a remix. We did the PSP version. Oh, okay. Um, so that was our first full project that we did on our own, and it was a result of, you know, Obviously, our relationship with Neversoft and and the remote work working out and and that was you know Steve set up technically like all kinds of secure networking and we had access to Neversoft servers and projects and things on 
you know, and there, it was it was very hassle free. And and you know, like I said, that that comes from people that are like him, who they're just these brilliant, brilliant people that are they're always the smartest guy in the room, you know. Right. And uh, and so yeah, I jumped on him like a backpack. <laughs> 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 Uh, so yeah. let's just briefly touch on a couple of the games that uh, happened after uh, your departure. We go to the Nether Next Gen with PlayStation 3, Xbox 360 with Project 8, and then, of course, Proving Ground being the final um, uh, entry into the series for Neversoft um, before they uh, did Guitar Hero stuff. Well, they kind of did yeah. it in tandem, but whatever. So they and they they it seems like we get to this point. You talked a lot about uh, an introduction of a new mechanic. They entered the nail the mechanics first, nail the, yeah. the trick, and then extended nail the grab and nail the manual. Mm-hmm. Did you think those were highly, you know? Uh, were those key to kind of that core gameplay that you've been talking about? Were those, I mean, did you, did you play those games? Did you, what, what, what are your impressions there? Yeah. Pro- Proving Ground was the one where, uh, you had the, like the hard kick, right? Like to go faster. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Agar kick. Yep. Yeah. So that was the one, like I played a little bit of that, um, and to me, it was kind of like coming back to it after a little while. And it felt like the, the PlayStation controller had 700 buttons on it. So why not use all <laughs> 700? Right? Like, that's what that, that felt like to me, the aggro kick. Like, right. Why can't I just, like, I don't know. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, like, that was, that was, where was the question going again? Uh, it's just basically your impressions because it feels like yeah. in a bit, you know, the nail the mechanics seem like maybe a little bit of a oh, response yeah, right. to the skate series coming up into those popularity, things, you know? Yeah, those things I thought looked really good. Um, I don't know that they uh, uh, technically some of it was kind of weird. You could flip the board over and make it look really, really odd. But I thought the uh, the polish on it was really cool. It looked interesting in, you know, videos and whatever. Yes. In practice, I don't think it was um as practical or as impactful because it wasn't something that you could just do in the middle of a combo right like it slowed the game down and it was kind of engineered for specific spots and things like that that you could take advantage of it in um so it didn't it didn't flow through the gameplay right the the core line of gameplay the way that all this other stuff did and for that matter neither did aggro kicking you know like it wasn't you just, I think you started off with like Mike V and you just had to aggro kick around in a circle. Uh, and it was that, that, yeah, that didn't hit me too hard. And I think it was kind of a response. I think at the time, uh, Skate One had hit by then, right. if I'm not mistaken, right? And I believe so, yes. Yeah, so, so the big thing with Skate One, uh, obviously the physics, but more so, I think, was the camera, the drop down camera, like down by the skater's yep. feet. So it looked like a skate video. Yep. Yep. Um, and you could really, I think what that did was, was showed a lot of people that you could get a lot of the, um, the cool visual feedback of like what this board is doing and how crazy it is to flip it this way and that way, mm-hmm. um, without having to blast off 30 feet in the air, the way that our physics did, you know, like you, it, it felt good to do a, a two foot high Ollie on a, on a bank. That mm-hmm. was, you know, that was one thing that Scott and I had always talked about um, back and forth was bank 
physics. Like, can we somehow make bank physics work in our engine? And it just, it just, I don't think was ever meant to be. And skate, uh, their physics were set up so that that's exactly what you could do. If you rolled up on a bank and lost your speed at the peak, did a flip trick, and then rolled out of it, it felt awesome. And that was one thing that we had talked about specifically that we never, we never could get right. We never could wrap our head around. It just became apparent that that just wasn't our game. Yeah. Um, but man, I love skate. I beat that game a hundred percent. That was. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the skate game as of the skate franchise as well. I, I actually really liked all three titles. Some people don't like three for various reasons, but I yeah. really enjoyed all three of them. But I still like I had touched on earlier. To me, they're different games. Yes, they're both skateboarding, but skates so much more of the realistic kind of sim. And then later yeah. we get into Skater XL and Session, of course, that are super sim-esque. But you guys are yeah. always the arcade model, and I, I love that. I, it's just I yeah. love that about Tony Hawk. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I was the same way. I still am. You know, I, I thought Skate had enough. Uh, it, it still had enough of that feel where um, you could do stuff that you couldn't do in real life. And that's that's key, right? right. I, I, even now, like, every game I, I – overlook it at nicholas or at supervillain when i was you know when we had supervillain going mm -hmm. um my number one goal is that i just whatever i'm doing in a game i want to feel like a badass at that thing right <laughs> nice. uh, if i'm riding a skateboard i just want to look and feel really cool because i can't do this in real life if i'm right. playing a football game i want to look and feel really cool because i i'm gonna get the hell knocked out of me in real life <laughs> you know that kind of stuff if i'm playing a baseball game i want to be able to hit the ball when it, somebody throws it 100 miles an hour because right. god knows i'm not catching up to that in real life and when i'm in a you know or a shooter i'm i'm not, I'm not running around shooting anything so <laughs> this needs to feel neat you know that every single one of them no matter what it is you just nice. want to you, you want to feel cool or like a badass doing stuff that you can't do in real life and skate still had that you know it, it you felt cool doing that stuff even though it was a much more grounded uh experience right. than than the tony hawk stuff right so can you tell us what other games you were involved with aside from the mainline tony hawk games that were still released by neversoft because we know that supervillain was credited with porting gun and tony hawk's downhill jam yeah um, so we did, uh, the first thing we did, the first thing technically we did, Steve did as a uh, supervillain on the side was, um, MTX Moto Tracks. It was like a Travis Pastrana, uh, oh, yeah. deal. So supervillain's credited on that. That's our first credit. Uh, Steve, we, we were actually, I was working on gun when we left. Um, I had jumped from the skate team over to, uh, the, the startup gun team, um, and uh, had done just some early design stuff and whatever when we when we had gone. Um, and then at Supervillain, we did uh, Thug 2. We, or we, you know, continued to work on Thug 2. We did Remix. That was entirely us. And that was, um, uh, Sony hooked us up with, like, you know, early network adapter stuff again and got all the online working and whatever that way. Wow. Um, and then... Uh, we worked on Wasteland. We, our team had grown. We, we started expanding the company. And at the same time, we worked on we worked on Wasteland. We did some original work for that. So, like, we had guys doing level work and art and stuff like that. And then we did the Xbox port uh, of Gun. 
so like the mostly technical work to get it all running on Xbox. Um, we did a bunch of games for other companies and stuff uh, at that point, and then Activision came back and wanted us to do. They had done um, Downhill Jam. The I think it was the Wii game, right? It was the original one from Toys for Bob or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they had us do a PlayStation version. There's a good story there. They had us do a PlayStation version of Downhill Jam. Um, and they wanted us to add characters and uh, outfits and stuff like that, like secret outfits. And I, I, I think by that time, the Activision folks uh, were no longer the same folks that were involved in the older Tony Hawk games. So they didn't realize that Supervillain was founded by a bunch of people who worked on Tony Hawk games. And we, <laughs> and we still had we still had access to Tony. Um, one of our animators, as one of the secret outfits, um, decided he wanted to do this, like, it was called Sleepy Time Tony or something like that. He's in, like, his, <laughs> he's in, like, pajamas or boxer shorts or something, and it's super ridiculous. And and, uh, and we had sent our concepts over to Activision, and, and and they, you know, said yes to all of them except for this Sleepy Time Tony. They're like, yeah, no, we're not doing that one. And we said, hey, you know, can you just, can you ask asked Tony to take a look and they told us like straight up they're like not knowing we had in the background also sent it to Tony (laughs) and uh and so I forget who it was but somebody straight up told us on a phone call yeah we already we called Tony and he doesn't like it at all and we're like oh really because we sent it to Tony and he said he thought it was great (laughs) so so they they totally backed off and uh and we and the character went in the game so he's in there because Tony liked him. <laughs> oh, that's great. We're like, yeah, actually, you're lying. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty good. <laughs> Caught red-handed in their eye. Yeah, lie. for sure. <laughs> but yeah, you know, an- another one where the game the game was not necessarily something that we made. I mean, it was fun. It had its, its you know, specific niche for sure. Um, but we, you know, we, we built the PlayStation game and did all that the version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was fun. It was cool. And I, uh, that was, um, we were actually going to do, we were contracted and had started. We were about four months into um, Project 8 on PSP. Right. And right. Activision canceled it because they weren't, they weren't confident in the PSP anymore. So they, they that was it. They weren't going to do Hawk stuff. But there were early goings of that version um, of the game as well. You know, we did, uh, there's a lot, a lot of that, like, work um that got left behind i mean all the way back to to hawk 3 and stuff like i built levels as experiments um for the new engines that never made it into the game like there was a i, th- I think it was for th- it was for three or four we were we were looking at doing downhill levels again um now that we had more memory on playstation 2 right and i built right. a whole um like a prototype of a of a downhill san francisco level um that had and I was trying to make it long enough so that it lasted at least 60 seconds instead of 30, like the old games. Oh, wow. So I had these, like, you'd have a main drag that was down the uh, downhill, and you could get up on all these. And if you went, if you veered left, you could veer down a street that was all Chinatown. So instead of just the, the one Chinatown gate in the original game, it was this whole strip. And then that would cross paths and crisscross back into the main drag and if you went to the other side you went down this row of houses like all the victorians you know right 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 um, and then you got all the way down the hill 
and you you ended up on a turnaround like a little pad at the bottom with a trolley turnaround and all that stuff and that that never made it because it was um it was just going to be too big it was going to be it required too much stuff to uh to get it to work right and it still was a short experience you know it still felt weird to to 60 seconds later be teleported back to the top so we abandoned that um i did an australia level actually i did an australia level that uh somebody on youtube had a demo and was uh popped up it's uh it's uh famous within our circles i can tell you (laughs) so that was um that was a precursor to the the australia level we ended up doing initially we wanted to do the opera house uh and that was going to be the focus of the whole thing but again um Everything I ever made in the history of this game um, was too big, and I got in trouble for it. Like Joel, Joel would yell at me all the time, like, "Dude, you're freaking out all the artists. They don't they don't have any room for textures because you make your level so goddamn big." <laughs> and uh, every, I swear to God, every year we had the same the same. You know, I'd get I'd get in trouble every year. Um, oh my goodness! Every every level you see in the game that I did had another 30% that I had to lop off, you know, like wow. the school, school two had a whole back area. San Francisco wow. was all connected. You know, it, it, you could go, Oh the, man, the, the San Francisco starting point in the first game. Um, that was all intended to connect back there to Chinatown. To so you Chinatown. come down the I could see that. Sure. The other way. Yeah. So yeah. That, there was a whole area there. Oh, all you're doing right, you're making you're making a lot of people drool right now. They want those <laughs> they want those files. I can tell you. I can tell you. <laughs> they would love to see expanded school two and expanded San Francisco oh, and all of it. <laughs> the big the big flat wall in school two. There was a there was a back area to school two, so that um, you know the tunnels where the the lockers and the bathrooms are. Sure. Yeah. Um, those those were initially tunnels. And they came from that upper area. So there was another whole drag where you'd have this wow. big long rail in the back. And then you would turn, hang a left and you would come out of where those tunnels are into the, the area where you could jump to the roof and get to Carlsbad and all that. Yeah. Venice also, Venice was way bigger. It had a whole parking lot thing going on in the back where like the Venice ledge and all that is. Mm-hmm. Um, all those. Yeah. All those were bigger. That Australia one. Uh, my whole goal was to, to try to get you that you could skate uh, the opera house, but then also have like a, a viewpoint where you could see it and kind of appreciate the scale of it. Right. And then there's uh, the bridge also, the the bridge that goes over the bay there too. And I wanted you to be able to see that. And it was just such a gigantic sprawl that it just was never going to work. And so we ended up abandoning it, which is a bummer because I think there's a huge set of stairs out in front and it was going to basically be I was trying to build up some stuff where you could get enough speed to, to clear those stairs at top stats, like barely, like you'd have to do a perfect ollie off the top of it and you could, you could get a massive gap there and that was going to be fun, but I abandoned that. Um, but yeah, like <laughs> I love it. There, These are great some... stories. <laughs> I, I really wish, I, I wish somebody would be able to find a build that had that downhill San Francisco. Cause there was actually a lot of, um, you know, block out and, and prerequisite work done on it. It was it was like a more certainly more finished than that Australia um, opera house level. Like 
style level was still a mess with you know none of the right. collision was set all that stuff was just kind of all over the place well we have we have custom content creators within our community and what they've done is there's been a plugin for the for the modeling tool blender that's been made oh yeah and yeah. what they do is they'll take some of these various level yeah. assets and so forth and they'll They'll port them and bring them into Blender, and then they'll release them because in the Thug Pro mod for Thug 2, you can actually play custom levels. So we've played a lot of these kind of betas and everything else, but they typically have to start with at least some sort of de design asset. And if we have that design asset, then we have we have people that are able to bring these in, and it's pretty incredible, the process. So right, like I said, right now, you're making a whole <laughs> bunch of people drool. <laughs> they would love to get their hands on these files so that, you you know, some of these yeah. lost concepts and ideas could be brought into the, you know, into Thug Pro and then people could play them. God, some, someday, man, if I ever have the time, I would, I would love to go back in there myself and try to remember what I did and just build it up, you know, like build up. <laughs> oh, yeah, the school, yeah, you the make a lot of people. Also had that big brick wall that that's kind of the end of school too. Like mm -hmm. there was a whole, there was some uh, tennis courts. I had started doing tennis courts back there, um, wow. and those all got walled off and whatever because you know uh, it was getting too big. But I did, I did manage to keep the gym. <laughs> I kept that within memory, so <laughs> that was that was worth it to me. The, the the big hardcore secret area, you know, more so than making the level just a little bit bigger because it already felt pretty big. Right, right. Uh, yeah, everything I did, man. <laughs> it was always my problem. Well, what's interesting is you know it was it was really. Uh, theorized that for one plus two they might vicarious visions might incorporate or include some expanded areas into some of the other levels because obviously you know memory wouldn't be a, quite as big of an issue and so forth yeah, yeah and and I, I, I in some ways i appreciate that they stay true <laughs> in some ways i kind of wish that there would have been a little bit of expansion you know <laughs> yeah yeah you know uh i uh, some of the some of the folks that worked on that um, I, I, I get a vibe that they get it. Uh, yeah. The mall level in one and two is kind of one of my favorite levels. It's um, awesome. And it and I and I wasn't a huge fan of it. I liked it in the early games, but in the new one, I really dig it. Like, uh, just the concept is perfect. Like over the years, we've thought about like ways to bring back um, older levels and make them relevant. And the mall would be like was was to be a testament to the fact that malls have actually died right so it would be abandoned and all that and they that's exactly what they did yeah right and then of course i'm a i'm an 80s kid and so when you come out of the end of the mall and it and there's like that back to the future homage yeah the, absolutely the pine sign or whatever i would <laughs> love like, it yeah these guys totally get it i sat there for 15 minutes looking off into the horizon hoping that they had some little easter egg of like a streak like the like the time machine going by or like a flame streak in the parking lot or something but it didn't happen yeah i love it well that's a perfect segue freddie you want to grab this one yeah he's um we were talking about secret areas um mm -hmm. so there were always little easter eggs in all of the neversoft games this, the games that have been played likely for millions of hours by players all over the world. Is there some little hidden gem still left in any game that maybe someone hasn't found yet? God, I don't, I don't know. You know, I was actually, I was surprised to to find out that people hadn't seen that little camp in Kona, the little uh, homeless camp in the right. back. That was just kind of a visual Easter egg. Um, I don't 
I don't know. There was a lot of spots in um, like Thug 2 where we started putting things in windows. Like there were, we would put um, little signs or little stickers in inside windows. And from mm -hmm. a distance, it would just look like that window had a room in it. And the room was basically an empty box. So yeah, like if you dig around all those, you can you can do little bits. Um, I put a thing in Australia, but it was part of a goal, so I think you did it. But I don't I don't know that everybody under, understood it quite as much. Uh, there was a koala statue, uh, that, like Kenny the koala that you had to, <laughs> and you did a not a spin. He was yep. throwing a peace sign, and you did a not a spin on it, and it and when it. When all the the whole cutscene takes off and everything else, I, 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 you know, some people probably noticed, but some didn't. Um, the his finger, one of his fingers broke off, so that now he's flipping a bird. <laughs> I, and, I might have noticed that. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah that and sounds the, funny. The, the gap, the gap that you get when that happens is called it's called have a nice day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was like. That was fun. I thought that was pretty good. Um, we That's tried great. to get away with, with a lot of little stuff like that. All the little, um, there's people, there's, you know, I mean, the whole thing with the goat, like there's a goat in multiple games where you had to duck around an alley or into a room or whatever and find someone dancing behind a goat, which right. just at the time was a, a bunch of, you know, 20 something dudes. And that's what we thought was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah the gonna, goats. Uh... I'm not going to go out and say we were mature in any way, but you know, maybe in some cases that that helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's let's segue here, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna start to look at uh, trying to wind us down. I could go for hours, sure. but I want to honor <laughs> your team. Let's let's hit the big one. What's Team Chicken? So when I was in high school. Um, I was buddies with a guy who was kind of a, a Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, yeah. if ever there was one in real life, a guy named Andy. Okay. Um, and uh, he was a big surfer, and uh, he signed my yearbook one year, um, you know, blah, 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 Team Chicken, and he drew a wave on it. And so I asked him, like, what's Team Chicken? And he said, oh, that's my that's my surf team. Like, I'm going to totally get it off the ground, and we're going to be Team Chicken, because it was just a funny name, and he was a funny guy. Uh, and then fast forward to me working at Virgin, um, and we started getting into Quake pretty heavily, like uh, okay. like land games of Quake across yeah. the whole company. So we'd right. fill servers and whatever. And I ended up being uh, Quake and Quake 2, me and Steve Martin, the guy I was with when, uh, when I first met Joel when I was complaining in the bar. We ended up being some of the, the two of the top guys um, at those games. Um, and my handle was Team Chicken. I just had remembered it. I thought it was funny. It was a dumb thing that wasn't my name, so I used it. <laughs> and, I, and I happened to get really good at the game, so then all of a sudden all these people knew me by that, and it just stuck. I used it in a whole bunch of places. Um, you know, I put it, I put it all over, it was my Delphi name. It was all that stuff. So then the community kind of knew it. And then I used the initials for a bunch of gaps. There's, there's multiple TC gaps in yep. across several of the games. And so you can always tell if it's one of my levels, if there's one of those in there. <laughs> so yeah, team chicken. Big so is, team from a is high school buddy. I love it. Is there a TC gap in every single one of your levels? Yes. Yeah, not, not every single okay. one. Okay. Um, 
Like uh, the first one is the roof cap in school too. So I, I got when I was skating when I was a kid. Um, I, I wanted to have these gap names uh, that that meant something. Where like it sounded like somebody had already done this spot and like it was their spot. So right. like in in San Francisco, I remember I had like Bendy's lip and Bendy's ledge and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And like Bendy was supposed to be, you know, just some fake fictitious local who who murdered that spot, right? Okay. And uh, so that was kind of my thing because you know we we had in in school. Um, you know, we had the Lewis Ditch, which was named after the street, but also happened to be the, the name of one of the older brothers of the guys that was a ripper down there. Mm-hmm. And we'd all go down to the Lewis Ditch. And, you know, they all had names. We had the Lewis Ditch. We had, like, um, the Ball Banks. We had all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, in in actual skating, spots like that were a thing. You know, the Hubba, the Hubba Hideout. And um, right. EMB had a name. And the Brooklyn Banks had a name. And... Um, I, I remember there was a Tom Penny was a skater for flip and he was kind of way ahead of his time in terms of like all these crazy flip tricks that he could do. He was doing like hard flips and stuff that, that a lot of people just couldn't do. And there was this spot that was a big bank and it, you'd start at the parking lot above it. And there was a, a chain, like a boundary chain, you know, running right. across the front, so like cars wouldn't drive over it cause it was a parking space. Um, and he would do all these crazy flips over it. And he did like, he just kind of went down like, this checklist of every flip you could think of over this chain down this bank <laughs> and it ended up just being the spot that was his right and so right. it was like oh that's like penny's bank you know and it was whether right. you named it that way or not so that was kind of the the motivation and then i thought like hey i'll do tc and you know it'll be kind of a little fun easter egg if if people remember from one game to the next that oh i think i remember a tc here or there you yeah. know and this level or that level and then, of course, like TC's roof gap just becomes the biggest thing on earth. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I was gonna, and here we are, twenty years later, twenty-one years yeah. later, t- still talking about it. So, yeah, it's, man, it's the most, it's the simplest, like tiniest it. little gap in the thing, but it just, for whatever reason, man, it, it latched on. It had beautiful. that mystery to it. People didn't know what it meant. So there you go. That's beautiful. Team Chicken, love it. Team Chicken. So as we've asked our previous Neversoft guests, the studio is well known for the words work hard and play hard. Yeah. Do you have do you have a specific story that sticks out to you of a crazy or fun time while working at Neversoft? Oh yeah, we had um God, I remember one of our, our um Christmas po- Oh dude, there's oh there's so many. They're all popping into my head now. <laughs> um, one of the ones I had the most fun with personally, we had a we had a party, one of the Christmas parties. Um forget where it was it was out in in venice somewhere and uh tony you know tony came along and we all dressed up we all were um dressed up as um like 80s hair metal right like everybody (laughs) all the people some of the wives you know everybody dressed up as 80s hair metal and uh because we had a band play um oh god what's her name they're super famous in la yeah, Steel Panther. Is that what they're called? Oh gosh. Yeah, <laughs> my wife. Yeah. This the '80s so, satire band that's uh, something quite yeah, nude. They're like a, <laughs> yeah, they're like a cover band. Yeah, and, well, kind of. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think that's the name. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of a different one. But they were they're this they were really good. Like they would just blast all these hair metal songs, and so they played this whole set of hair metal songs and uh, put the mic in front of a bunch of devs, and everybody went nuts and you know, screaming songs into the song. And, and that translated actually later to another one of the uh, Christmas parties where we had um, 
tenacious D play, like before oh, they got real really? big. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, we had Joel on stage with Jack Black and, um, one of our animators got up there and started doing like, you know, uh, like grind core, like, Oh, nice. pissing them off until they came <laughs> on stage. But and like now Jack Black is, game. uh, is officer Dick all these years later. Yeah, I did not know he yeah, played it and never saw party. That's awesome. Circle. Yeah. Um, Joel going out, uh, Joel having a bunch of beers and he took, uh, he, he strapped a TV to an office chair and he rolled it up to a skate park. And at the time, you know, those, those CRTVs are just big, heavy monsters. Yeah. And he took the, the early game, the, te- uh, the first one, he took a build, uh, before there's any demos or anything, you know, he just took a build out to a skate park because he wanted kids to play it and he, and he plugged it in somewhere and <laughs> had a whole crowd of kids coming around. Nice. Uh, and you know he he had some beers in him, and so on his, on his way out, he's he's pushing the TV back out and everything else, and he he dumped it and exploded it all over the all over oh, the. Oh my gosh! Uh, but came back the next day, he's like, "Well, I made it back. You know, uh, the TV didn't, but have good news. Everybody at the skate park really loved it, um, and I apologize. On it was somebody's TV on the dev team, so he was like, "I'll get you another one." <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, there's all there was all kinds of fun stuff. That's fun great. Stuff that happened. Um, uh, oh man, they wore a mask into uh, when the whole uh, Spidey suit thing, the Spider-Man suit, was a thing in Tony Hawk uh, Two, I think. Yeah. Um, and the mask for the suit was still around uh, because they had cut holes in it. That that suit was belonged to a guy who was like officially licensed with Marvel as like. Uh, an official Spider-Man. Like if you went to a convention or something and there was a Spider-Man, mm-hmm. it was this person. Cause it was like a, an official thing. So the suit wow. was like a really expensive, big deal back then. Um, and when we, when we convinced them to let us borrow it for those videos where Tony and uh, Chris Markovich skate around in it, they cut holes out of the, they cut the eyes out of it and they ruined it basically like oh <laughs> so no this guy this guy's officially licensed too like they hacked out the eyes well the mask stayed around the office because you know we ended up obviously having to get that guy another suit sure um the mask stayed around the office and joel at one point wore it t- into a liquor store because he thought it would be funny and he <laughs> freaked out the guy behind the counter thinking that he was going to get robbed <laughs> all of that was he was like oh no man it's cool you know whatever it was either him or chris maybe it was chris ward and chris ward had a heavy accent um and so maybe it was him and he was trying to explain i'm just messing around you know before they take the mask off but yeah the, like people were like taken aback by it and whatever that oh was, my gosh was, yeah <laughs> we used to go on the on the very first game or maybe it was two it had, must have been two because we were we were a big deal by then uh, we had a bunch of stickers. They made a ton of stickers. And Joel came in um, before E3, which is our big trade show. Right. And yeah, uh, and this was the show where all these copycat games started coming up, like the Me Too guys, um, Grind Session and MTV yep. Skateboarding, and all these. They all kind of came out at the same the same year. Yep. After Tony Hawk had blown up, so Joel would give us like this three inch thick stack of NeverSoft stickers and say, you know, I want you to put these everywhere. I want people to not even know there's other skateboarding games. Like everything they see better be NeverSoft and whatever. <laughs> and I remember one in particular. I think it was the Grind Session booth because it was in the Sony booth, and they had, um, you know, those um, in the in the 
like a retail store when you have a demo of a PlayStation and sometimes they have that setup where it's got like that rigid arm with a controller on it so you can play on the TV. Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's like one of those. And it's got the PlayStation controller sticking out of the end. And we would have um, one of our people go ask the rep who's like standing in front of like the four grind session stations would go ask them questions so that they weren't looking at us, like the, the distraction. And we <laughs> we completely caked, like covered oh over every square inch of the controllers. <laughs> so you couldn't play. <laughs> and like you would have to get in there and cut them off. Like they were they were pissed. Like they were calling Activision. One of our guys put a sticker on their on Nintendo's giant Pikachu and they were pissed about that. Um there was everywhere. One oh of them got, got one into, uh, uh, I think it was John Romero, and somebody got a sticker like onto his back, and it got on his hair because he oh had really long goodness. hair at the time. And yeah, that was that was a little sketchy, but also at the time we were like, ha ha. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> all, there's lots of that stuff. Wow. Well, we're going to, uh, we have, we still have a mountain of questions. We're never going to get through them tonight. And, uh, <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do another one. Man. Yeah. We'll I'd, we, we would love to, if you'd be down, we, we would love to do a part two with you, Chris. So this has been yeah, a lot sure. of fun. Let's for end sure. with this question. We'll just go ahead and end it with this. So out of all the time you worked on the Tony Hawk franchise, what would you consider <laughs> your proudest thing that you accomplished out of all of it? Um, gosh, you know, I, Years later, um, I'm, I had started Supervillain. I was working. Uh, I was. I was. I now owned a company, um, and this was. You know, we we had always prided ourselves on getting all these cool, talented people in here and building a bitchin culture that that everyone, you know, wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hired a, a younger guy. We hired a kid um, who was just out of art school, and he was in a punk band. Um, and he was, he was kind of this aspiring musician and artist and whatever. And he didn't know at the time, and I didn't know much about that. He didn't know I had worked on Tony Hawk and somebody on the dev team told him like, yeah, dude, uh, Roush guy, the owner guy, he, he was one of the original Tony Hawk guys. And the, and the kid came in my office and he started thanking me like up and down. He's like, dude, you are one of the, the, you're the reason that I, I got into punk rock in the first place and you know all this other stuff and now i'm actually a musician and i play in all these bands and all this stuff and it was all because of that game that like spawned this whole thing and he ended up kind of being one of the first people that you know as time goes on have said something like that and so it knowing all of the things that i grew up with like star wars and atari and all these things that were huge critical roles in my you know, like my development and sure. my creative imagination and all that stuff that were so pivotal to me doing this stuff. It was really kind of cool and humbling and, and odd all at the same time <laughs> to, to hear people talk about those games being as important a part of their life or their growing up as something that I thought was on a whole other level you know but like to them it was that important like my whole i mean i still to this day i meet people and and they you know somebody will end up telling them like oh yeah he worked on tony hawk or whatever and they they freak out like right and it's it's really that that that's really cool there are people out there who um 
who hold it that important and that, and that's something that I made and worked on and that's pretty special that's yeah. that's that's got to be an away, amazing you know? feeling. Yeah, sure. Well, and, and that's exactly what it became. It became such a, a, a part of culture. And, you know, when you think of skateboarding games, you can't not think of Tony Hawk. When you hear, you know, when you hear pretending I'm a Superman come on, you know, streaming somewhere or on a video, yeah. you immediately associate it. And you, you're thrown back to, to Tony Hawk or at least anybody that's played the series that I know yeah. <laughs> makes that association. So, yeah, cultural yeah. phenomenon without a doubt. I take credit for that song too. Oh, really? That was one <laughs> yeah, of our I, questions we were going to get to. Oh, did you? All right, all <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> I worked with uh, at Virgin. Yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll wrap it. Oh up. no, you're at, fine. You're at, fine. At Virgin, I worked with a guy named Jeff Gordon, um, and uh, we started working on music videos as a little side project for local bands. And um, one of the ones we did, uh, he, he had finished. He was a director, and I was basically just helping and producing all that stuff. Right. Um, we worked uh, on a on a video for a band called Jigsaw. Well, he he ended up getting attention from. I had left to go do the Tony Hawk stuff, and he had um, he started getting attention from uh, big labels to do mm. uh, videos. And he hooked into a, a Mojo Records, and uh, they were Goldfinger's label, and they mm. sent him an early copy of the second album, which is where that that track came from. And he called me back up and said, hey, you know, let's let's film some stuff. I'm going to do a video for these guys. And I was like, all right, cool. So we filmed like some commercial footage that, that wasn't used, like him and I driving around in circles doing weird stuff with a giant version of that album in the backseat. Um, and uh, and yeah, and th that song was, I think, the title track, like the lead track on the record. And um, it was just rad. So when it came time to put together music for the game, um, it was me and Pease, and maybe like one other guy. Ralph, I think, was, was involved in that. Mm -hmm. On the fir very first game, um, you know, like, what, what do we bring to the table? So we were breaking out CDs and, and all this stuff, and Activision, that music wasn't um, commercial at the time, and so, right. like, Activision was pretty confident we could sign whoever we wanted. And, and we were thinking of, like, you know, we could get groups like the Dead Kennedys or all these big name uh punk bands that right. were like super important and then we can get locals and do whatever and so that's where yeah like i brought in like the vandals um like suicide machines nice. um and then goldfinger um primus i was a big primus head um and those were the kind of bands that we that we ended up being able to get signed you know joel was always trying to get ACDC and all this other stuff that like <laughs> later after the game exploded we could afford them sure but you know like we could sign Goldfinger for $2,500 or something right right um, and then you know the the repercussions of that are that the game blows up and then their album sells a zillion copies so yeah, yeah. everybody high five all the way around but then you know you want to sign ACDC or somebody else and it's like well that one's 30,000 like <laughs> oh man forget it like, that's, that's insane you know, like no way right. so we got all these bands that you know um, that were big, and and you know, there, it was always a part. It was always making sure that the songs had really good hooks and motivated yeah. you to go fast and jump far. You know, like that was. Yeah, oh, they're they're iconic, and it's really cool. And I've known that to be true just from the documentary. You know, just they're some of the getting on the Tony Hawk game made some of these bands' careers or reinvigorated their careers. You know, it's yeah, crazy, yeah. crazy. Stories. When when Ralph was doing the Ralph did the. Um, 
the new documentary that mm-hmm. uh, that pretending I'm a Superman documentary, and he was he was pointing me to SoundCloud. I think it was SoundCloud. Is that the one where you can see um, the the like play the number of plays um, on I all the different so. tracks? And you would go to like albums that were on the the Tony Hawk soundtrack, like the Goldfinger one. Yep. And you'd see you know a couple hundred thousand or whatever plays mm-hmm. of all the all the regular tracks, and then like a few million plays of like you know superman or yep. all the other all the other ones that were the the tony hawk hits that people knew like it yep. just you could see flatly that it just exploded for totally. those guys which was cool super cool <laughs> well chris this has been awesome we really uh it's been so much fun you've had some amazing stories i know you've made a bunch of people in our community drool over some of these stories of uh, yeah, you know cool. lost level designs and stuff and uh <laughs> we really appreciate it um yeah if uh, we'll we'll hook up and see if we could maybe do a part two next year or something um For but sure. uh i want to just take just this last bit and just say to you um is there anything that you'd like to say? What do you got going on right now? What could you maybe say? Do you have uh, – I know you're working in Nicholas right now, with, which is an mm-hmm. awesome game studio. If you want to talk about that a little bit, the floor is yours for the next couple of minutes. Anything you want to shout out, any promos, any people you'd like to give a shout out to, your company, whatever you'd like to do, the floor is yours just for the, as we close up. Yeah, uh, you know, all of those original and Eversoft people on that team, you know, Aaron Camerata – um, Jason Wada, Mick West, Joel Jewett, all, all Scott Pease, um, Jason Keeney, all, all those guys. I'm sure I missed people. Ryan McMahon was the guy that built the Create a Park originally and all by himself. Wow. Um, all those people, like, uh, you know, I, I totally appreciate uh, and, and forever and ever everything that I learned from them. Um, and, you know, the fact that I was able to be a part of this with them, super rad. Joel, Joel especially, you know, we, we butted heads constantly over <laughs> things being too big or the way I worked or I freaked him out because it was going to be, he thought it was going to be late and I could pull it in, you know, all this kind of stuff. But man, the, the, I learned so much from that guy, even, even in the lessons I took to running my own company, you know, mm. like, uh, yeah, without that dude, I, th- there's, there's, there is no game. Like, you know, he was the... He was the champion of the whole thing in the first place. So, nice. um, you know, Steve Gannum, my partner at Supervillain, is awesome. Um, you know, Chris Glenn, uh, my longtime collaborator artist, who was who was our art director at Supervillain as well. You know, we worked together on all the the um, Tony Hawk stuff. Um, yeah, all, all those people, all the all the people who keep this going, the whole Thug Pro community, like this whole game, that has to be part of what. Activision considered when they were looking at the fact that there's still an audience for this stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. there are hardcore people dedicated to this and they're making a version of the game that's better than anyone you put out. <laughs> you know, and it's like all encompassing and, and awesome. <laughs> um, all of those, all those devs too, all those, all those uh, Thug Pro people that are building levels and skins and whoever made the chicken suit specifically. <laughs> High five, you know? <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, just, uh, just, uh, you guys, everybody that wants to talk to me, I love talking about this stuff and, and, you know, with the new game and the movie and all that, like a whole bunch of people seem to want to talk to me again. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> I like it. It's good. I like talking about this stuff. It's fun to talk about stuff that people really like, you know, I've made some, uh, shitty games in my career as well as all this stuff. So 
it's nice <laughs> to talk about these ones. You know, they, they, they can't all be hits. Man. <laughs> oh, sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure not every band has a, a number one hit on their albums and not every video yeah. game studio has a number one hit in their repertoire. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> very yeah. good. Well, Chris, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. It's been wonderful. Um, it, like I said, um, yeah, let's stay in touch for sure. I hope we can. Um, I've enjoyed it getting to know you and getting to know you better. You've just been so gracious and so humble. So we really appreciate it. Yeah, totally dig it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And yeah, thanks to everybody in the. Ch- I see everybody in the chat too. So I, I I appreciate all the questions. We'll we'll get to them for sure. <laughs> cool. All right, Chris. Well, we're just going to uh, end and uh, talk about our next episode. You're welcome to stay on the call. You can drop off. I know we we're three hours into it. So uh, whatever. Yeah, I got like a, to... I got a I got a wife looking at me with uh, <laughs> hungry eyes, so I tap at her watch. You know, so I love it. All right, thanks, All right Chris. Thanks again. All right, thank you All so right, much. Take care. Thank you. All right, Bye. good stuff. <clears throat> All right, gang. Uh, great time with Chris. Uh, lots of great stories. We figured it, we figured there would we knew there would be. Not figured. We knew there would be. Um, so, with that, we're gonna uh, go ahead and introduce our next guest here coming up. So, just as a heads up, everybody, uh, our next episode, episode number forty-two, it's gonna be our final episode of the year for twenty twenty. Um, between the holidays and just going hard in the paint now for twenty-four episodes, we'll be after uh, this next one. Uh, Freddie and I, uh, we're gonna be ready to take a short hiatus us to the end of the year we will be back in 2021 stay tuned to our twitter uh stay tuned to our twitter account (laughs) for announcements and details before we take our break we have one more awesome guest uh for everybody to check out for next year and that is going to be for episode number 42 saturday november 21st 8 p.m eastern we are pleased to welcome to the podcast ghost so, Ghost is an incredibly talented player who started playing casually when the series first came out and only got uh, into the online scene and the world of improv and transfers in 2016. He's the founder and leader of the SMG Clan, which released two of the most critically acclaimed team transfers videos ever and later became a member of a Ruins in Vain or Riv um, during his uh, cross-country travels ghost has actually met up with nine fellow uh, thps players and he's become extremely well versed in the meta of a thps with regards to improv transfer techniques so it's going to be very interesting to discuss the current state of improv and all things tony hawks pro skater with him on a saturday november 21st freddie i know you and ghost are, are good friends so uh give me some thoughts on ghost here yeah, I mean, if there's anybody out there that you want to talk about improv transfers with, Ghost is the premier person for it because he's just so v- very well-versed in everything that's going on in these videos. He can explain what's happening, how it's happening. So it's going to be pretty cool to deep dive into some of these more intricate videos that we've been seeing lately. Yeah, I love it. Good stuff. Should be a lot of fun with with Ghost. Um, I don't know him real well, but I'm excited to get him. Uh, I'm excited to get to know him better for sure. <clears throat> All right, hey everybody. We are super grateful for everybody taking the time to hang out with us and spending some time. Um, we appreciate you guys. That was a long one, but uh, I think it was time well spent. When when you're having fun. Um, and you're you and you're enjoying yourself, um, and you're having good conversation. The time flies, so we appreciate your 
continued and as always support you guys are awesome we will see you real soon